0: Grandma told me the city's like a stranger. But maybe we can make it a friend.
1: Resbows. I'm just saying they gotta change the ways if they're gonna make it
2: down here. Your problem is. Never had any ways to change.
0: Mommy, I wish we were real Indians. Honey, we are real Indians.
2: Does it say what happened to him? No, not really. But they did find him down by that old hydroelectric plant. By the falls? By the falls. What did they say happened to him? They said he froze to death. Well, that's what they say, but what do you think? Well, I think it's easy to get dead. I'm sorry, we're closed. You'll have to leave. I ain't going nowhere. I'll call the police.
0: John, let's go back home I'm scared And when we sew the little jingles on your dress They'll make a beautiful sound, like it's raining And the rain will make everyone better That's right It's a healing dress Ah, you it? about the hairstyle? Elizabeth, go
1: the way to kick this thing off right there. that's the jingle dress song that song is it's one of those songs you just you know you feel in your veins and and in your heart and it totally amps you up It lifts your spirits it gets the heart going i mean it just makes you feel invincible and i think the reason why even though you, those of you who may not know anything about the culture is uh that that song it's a healing song uh it's it's a prayer song and the women who are dancing this dance they're praying for you, Bubba. And that, that, that dress, it sings along with the drums and the singers. And it's crying out to all that can hear. It's just sending your thoughts and your prayers straight to creator's ears. Saying, you know, hear me, help me, heal me. Hela! That is good good medicine right there. It's, it's powerful medicine. And I think that's something that we could all use right now. I mean, I know I can. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why I chose this movie, actually. And I am very excited to bring it to you. Uh, Legabaschi, welcome to episode three of Skoda and Cinema. This is an intertribal podcast focused on discussions relating to Native American representation in pop culture and media. <laughs> on this very special episode, we'll be discussing the 2014 William Eigen film, The Jingle Dress, that stars the Alpha Dog himself, right out of the Twilight Saga, Cheske Spencer, Stacy Thunder, one of my personal favorite Native American actors, uh, Steve Rivas, Kimberly Guerrero, and it also introduces an eight-year-old actor by the name of Sinaya Sanchez-Hohenstein as Rose, the character that's kind of yearning for this, the titular jingle dress. Today we'll be discussing the rich, beautiful culture of the Anishinaabe people of the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota, which this film is centered and lastly, we're going to take a look at the history and stories of one of Indian Nation's most unique and stunning pieces of regalia, the Jingle Dress. I am your host, Turtle Boy. We are broadcasting live out of the Sweat Lodge Fitness Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, now with 100% more reservation street cred, Mado oh, Supreme Court. I promise I haven't abated you guys. I know it's been a long time. Uh, for all you listeners out there waiting on episode 3. I mean, literally, I have probably like 12 people that are just ready to, to, to download. And they want to hear something about something out there. So for the dozens and, and for the dozens of Skoden fans that have hung in there for this moment. This is all for you, Bubba. Uh, the truth is, though, honestly, my, my time has been pretty stretched thin here of late. The most exciting thing that, that recently happened to us. Uh, is that my wife and I, we, we added to our tribe. And so uh, we have a brand new baby boy that was born on July 31st. And he's been taking up a, a whole heap of time for us. But uh, we're happy that he's here. He's healthy. He's starving. He's gassy. He's wrestling and hassling and grunting at all hours of the night and day. But we love him so much. So welcome to the world uh little apatana uh, kudi kudi uh we've had a lot of great things happening though in indian country as of many of our ceremonial grounds we're dancing green corn every weekend and while i didn't really get to participate too much this year uh it definitely is something i'm looking forward to next year but we did get to head up there and watch the ribbon dance and we got to visit a bit so that's always good to just kind of socialize and have a good supper uh I've also been wrapped up in kicking off the new school year, and it's just a, a crazy time. We've been doing lots of training, uh, lots of uh, uh, workshops, and, you know, how to keep the kiddos safe and how to keep ourselves safe. And so, you know, during all of that, the, the birth of our son and the global pandemic and uh, the ceremonial grounds and starting school, I just, I was like, hey, you know what? This is a perfect time to start a podcast, I mean, I have nothing else going on, right? So let's, let's do that. So it's not ideal, I know, but it is what it is, Bubba, and I appreciate you guys hanging in there and waiting it all out. I promise I've got lots of uh, research that I've done for this episode that I hope that you find really, really interesting. And it's, it's a lot of hard work, but uh, it's all worth it because it's, it's just a lot of fun. But I want to start the council meeting off with a few smoke signals I've received involving the podcast. Uh, I've been reading emails like i and I've been listening to all your suggestions and i swear I swear for this episode. I am going to speak into the mic uh full disclosure sometimes I get into the pod zone, especially when I get that sweat going, that real good sweat, and I got the the cedar burning or sometimes I got the sage burning and uh you know the diet mountain dew is surging through my veins I mean. I have a tendency to kind of just close my eyes and just talk. And then 12 minutes later, I kind of open my eyes, and I realize I'm like two feet sideways of the microphone and turn south talking to my papa, a uh Funko Pop. And uh, so I'm going to make a conscious effort to try to stand still for this one. And I got to really work on projecting uh, towards that big, black circular thing that's literally five inches from my face, isn't it? Uh, But I also got a smoke signal from a listener named Eduardo, and he wrote me uh, uh, an email. He sent me an email, and it says, Yo, I am so happy to have stumbled onto your podcast. I am a museum educator at a film museum, and I can't express enough how much I value what you're doing with this podcast. Indigenous representation in film is something I am interested researching and reading about and hoping to design some educational programs around in the future. I'm so looking forward to where the show goes next. You have done some fantastic work on all the research with show one on The Lone Ranger. I learned a lot and I can't wait to hear what films you'll cover next. One thought, you left me really wondering why you won't talk about Johnny Depp, but you went into detail with all the other actors that portrayed Tonto I guess, uh, why, but that's not fun for your listeners. Uh, perhaps you will cover him or whatever reason you have for not talking about him on a later show. Also, have you considered having a co-host to talk with on occasion? Fantastic work. Keep them coming. Your podcast gets a 10 on the Indian taco grading scale. Eduardo Sanchez. Apologies for any typos. Eduardo, thank you so much for, for taking the time out to email me, uh, like I said, I apologize for getting back to you so late, but uh, time has been pretty uh valuable here. But yes sir, to answer your questions, I'm definitely looking to expand the show as it progresses. Uh, I'd love to have guests come on. Uh there's tons of Native American filmmakers out there, uh, especially in our area, and we have Sterling Harjo and uh we got uh you know several several people locally that that are involved in the scene. So I'd love to have them come on and talk about what they got going on. Uh, contributors, anybody that's wanting to contribute to the show, maybe you have an idea for a segment or something like that. And I'm always wanting you all to play the Scoden Cinema Home Game, watching along with me, chime in, write in suggestions, segments, anything that you want to hear about. Don't feel uh, hesitant to, to email me. Just uh, shoot me an email or, or whatever. As far as Johnny, the Johnny Depp dig goes... <laughs> Uh, it's it's really just more of a personal jab than anything else I mean around here he's kind of held up to this idea of the most visually striking of any Native American walking the planet but he's never really come forward with any you know actual proof of tribal affiliation or blood quantum or, or anything like that but even though he's kind of treated as like the God of native American actors, yet he's only kind of vaguely mentioned anything about it. I think somewhere down the line, he says, well, I must have some uh, native Americans somewhere in my line. I mean, my great grandmother was quite a bit of native American and she grew up Cherokee or maybe Creek Indian or, you know, makes sense in terms because she was from Kentucky, which is rife with Cherokee and Creek Indian. Well, well, not to, to to you know it, you know offend any of our uh creek or, or cherokee listeners out there in kentucky if there are any i just i don't remember kentucky being you know much of a tribal uh creek nation or, or cherokee nation uh hotbed so to speak i mean as far as i know the only thing they're really known for maybe baseball bats or you know thoroughbreds and and, and whiskey but uh I'm not really sure what he's talking about because the Muscogee people, I mean, we're, we're from like Alabama and Georgia, Florida, and South Carolina areas, you know, not Kentucky. Uh, I mean, unless I'm wrong. And and if I'm wrong, please, please let me know. Uh, you can always shoot me an email at scotincinema at gmail.com and, and let me know. As far as Cherokee is concerned, they were really kind of a nomadic people. Which, I mean, I guess with what he's talking about would make more sense. They kind of just did a lot of traveling. So, again, I'm not really sure what exactly he's he's really talking about. But uh, I do love his work, and I do respect the man, but I really get frustrated with this constant idol worship. Not to mention, which is really the, the whole focus of why I don't really talk about him too much, is how much of cultural uh, cultural appropriation or, or maybe misappropriation would be a more uh, – a better term. Uh, the reason why I say that is just really because of the ad that he did for uh, Christian Dior, the savage cologne. Well, first, savage translates to savage uh, and, you know <laughs> – We've always been sort of depicted as this merciless Indian savage, according to the Declaration of Independence. But second, if you really haven't seen the ad, uh, you it's eh, <laughs> you need to head to YouTube and check it out. There's two of them. I mean, they're both. It's literally one groaner after the next. So here is my list of cigar store groaners. And this is for the first ad. Now, keep in mind, this ad is only one minute and seven seconds long. And in that, you know, uh, uh, 67 seconds, he managed to cram a lot into it. Once again, if you don't believe me, check it out. It's on YouTube. It's still up. But I think they actually pulled the ad from national uh, syndication. But the first one is uh, Native Americans ostensibly portrayed stereotypically. Check. Uh, a rich Hollywood movie star in the lead role whose Native American eth- ethnicity is debated and who therefore could be accused of cultural appropriation? Check. Number three, a much younger Native American woman objectified in the background as Depp's potential love interest. I mean, with all this gendered power relations that suggest, I mean, it's, it's a sad state of affairs. But check, he, that, that's in the ad. Uh, Number four, a brand name that's suggestive of a racial slur with connotations that are long and ugly, check. Number five, an American minority uh, who have experienced disposition, dispossession, excuse me, and a systematic historic disadvantage juxtaposed with a luxury good and disproportionately few of them are in a position to afford, check. I mean, they're trying to sell this to people that, you know, historically can't afford it and then that's that's another check there and then there's a second ad that that's actually even worse than the first if that is even possible so the second one is like 1 minute 11 seconds so he's has just you know 4 seconds but that means he's got 4 more seconds to include these groaners uh there's shots of landscapes being raped and desecrated with pumping oil derricks as he has this narration um, as he's driving this you know, $100,000 car uh, across the desert. He drives by a buffalo along the highway. I, I kid you not, uh, there's a buffalo along the highway, and he passes it. He kind of peels out, and he spins out, and he, he gets out of his car, and when the car door opens, you get that cinematic screeching eagle sound. Which is another of the, the biggest groaners that I have, and then cut. And I'm not even lying to you. He, you cut to a friggin' there's a friggin' wolf on top of his car. I, I'm not even lying to you. There's a, a wolf. It's not even a coyote. I mean, at least put a coyote in there. But it's a friggin' wolf on top of his car. And then he walks out to to the to the desert. And this is number five. He for some reason he buries this beautiful beaded necklace. And there's a beaded pendant along with it, and he tosses it in the dirt, and he buries it. I mean, seriously, this thing has more groaners than a poolside Falwell family function. That's for sure. So, like I said, not to mention those interviews that he did in 2002, 2011, where he, you know, he claimed to have some type of Native American ancestry. But it says, you know, he doesn't really – he's not for sure. He just thinks – that his uh his great grandmother or his, his grandmother was was a full blood Cherokee. I don't know. Uh we'll discuss Johnny Depp I'm sure if we get further down the line. I mean not even to mention that um of all the actors they could have picked to play Tonto in The Lone Ranger they went with uh a non-native actor which I really think is a slap in the face to the the history of the character and just really uh you know an unfortunate uh uh just like a disservice to the character, and, the, and like I said, just the history behind behind the Lone Ranger uh, himself. So, anyway, thank you so much, Eduardo, for your kind words. I really appreciate it. It really is letters like this that you know kind of keep me going. That that you know keeps me vested. It, it definitely uh, inspires me to want to bring the best possible show that I can to you guys. And so it's why I spend so much time doing the research. It's why right now it's only once a month, but uh, also just, you know, trying to sneak it in when I can. I mean, I, I can't, it's hard for me just to sit down and have, you know, five or six hours to work on this when little baby cootie is, is sleeping or not asleep, I should say. But uh, anyway, thank you so much for the, for the, like I said, the kind words. And if anybody else you want to email me, please shoot me an email at scotancinema at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and join the discussion on the Facebook page as well. Just let me know what your thoughts are. And as always, uh, thank you, Mado, for everything. I, I really get a kick out of, of reading all of these and, and, and doing that. So thank you. So if we don't have anything else to cover this round, I guess let's talk about the movie, 2014's The Jingle Dress, Scoden. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Getting those hot rocks going. All right. (laughs) Uh, Jingle Dress. Uh, First things first, this is not available anywhere other than online. You have to go to uh, thejingledress.com to download this movie. It's only uh, $9.99. It is definitely uh, worth it. It's it's a great, charming little movie. Uh, But I'm a physical media guy. I love my Blu-rays. I love my VHS. I love my DVDs, but this one is only available uh for download. But don't let that uh throw you or keep you or hold you back from from, from checking it out because like I said it's it's really really good. Uh there's no tagline for this movie, which is fine, but it does star Sanaya Sanchez Hohenstein as Rose. She is standing rock Sue, and this is her one and only film credit. And I think um, with most of the people in this film, uh, if you get the chance to see it, you'll notice that. I mean, the, the acting is a little stiff, but again, uh, it, it's a good film. But uh, but she stars in it. Then you have Cheske Spencer as John Red Elk. He's from Tahlequah, Oklahoma. He is Sioux, Cherokee, and Nez Perce. His other credits include Skins, uh, 2002 Skins, which we will be covering he was uh, most famous, though, probably for the Twilight Saga. He was the Wolfpack Alpha, Sam Uly, uh in 2009, 2012. Uh, Sneaky Pete, he's been in that. Longmire, Jessica Jones, and Winter in the Blood, which is another film that we'll definitely be covering. Uh, Stacy Thunder, she plays Elsie. She's a Ojibwa, and her credits include uh, she hosts a weekly PBS news program called The Native Report. Uh, and she now hosts a, also hosts a show called Indigenous with Stacey Thunder, and it seems to me this is it's very similar to this podcast. It's a, a show where people share contemporary stories that shatter old, uh, age old stereotypes and misconceptions. She has a few, a few film credits, but mainly bit parts, and she's always plays news reporter in all the movies that she's in. But this one, she actually gets to stretch her legs and, and really act. Um, one of my favorite. Native American actors Steve Revis, he plays Buff. He is born and raised the Blackfeet Reservation Indian from Browning, Montana. Uh, Steve has been in a ton of stuff, uh, but he was the Indian in Twins, uh, the Schwarzenegger Devito vehicle. Uh, he had a bit part in Dances with Wolves. He was the Indian in the Desert uh, in Oliver Stone's The Doors. He plays Ch- he played Chato. In Geronimo, but my all-time favorite Steve Rivas, uh part was the 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 role of Shep Proudfoot in Fargo. Uh, I cannot look at Steve Reeves and not picture him uh, taking his belt off and whipping a naked Steve Buscemi uh, in, in Fargo. It's such a memorable uh, role and a memorable scene, and it's one to me that just stands out in, in an otherwise fantastic movie. But he was also in The Longest Yard. He was in The Cherokee Word for Water. He's in Road, po- Road to Paloma, which is another one that we'll get to. And sadly, though, uh, Steve passed away uh, on December seventh, two 2017. Uh, also in the film is Kimberly Guerrero-Norris. She plays Janet. She's another Oklahoman, a native Oklahoman. She's from Idabel. But she is Colville Indian. Uh, she's an enrolled member. She's Salish Kootenai and Cherokee. Uh, where are the Colville's? Well, the traditional territories of the Colville tribes extends mainly across eastern Washington uh, into portions of British Columbia, Oregon, and, and Idaho. Uh, they had some of the earliest consistent interaction with Euro-Americans in the Northwest. David Thompson's expedition met with them uh, way back in 1918. Um, but she's been in a ton of other credits. She's been... Uh, Like I said, she was in, uh, she voiced, did a lot of voiceover work. She was a character in uh, Hayao uh, Miyazaki's My Neighbor Totoro. She was in uh, Hildago. She was in The Sopranos. She's been in Grey's Anatomy. She's been in As the World Turns. But probably her most memorable role was Jerry Seinfeld's Indian girlfriend in the Cigar Store Indian uh, episode of Seinfeld. Which is actually a pretty good episode, I will say. Uh, then you have Brandon Oaks; he plays Rick. He is Mohican, and his other credits include uh, he started his career actually as a dancer, uh, apparently, uh, and he has performed and toured extensively throughout the North with, throughout North America with several native dance theaters. He's most noted for his role in the film *Through the Black Spruce*. It is a 2018 sinister drama. ...about the disappearance of a young Cree woman in Toronto... ...traumatizing her Northern uh, Ontario Ontario family. And she sends her twin sister on a journey south to find her. Uh, He received a Canadian Screen Actors uh, nomination for Best Actor in a Drama. And he was also nominated for a CSA for Best Supporting Actor in a Dramatic Series for Dickstown in 2020. But this film is written, directed, produced by Bill Eigen... Who has no tribal affiliation, and he's really not known for much, uh, many other things other than just two documentaries that he did about Pete Sear, the folk singer. The box description, and I just kind of pulled this from the, the web page itself, like I said, the www.thejingledress.com. It says here A Desert Storm vet John Red Elk hears from his relatives down in Minneapolis that his uncle Norton is dead. And he vows to go to the big city to find out what really happened to him. At its heart, the Jingle Dress is a contemporary story of a Native American family that moves from their rural home on the reservation in northern Minnesota to the faster-paced urban environment of Minneapolis. We follow the Red Elk family as they experience city culture through their unvarnished perspective, as well as gain insight into their indigenous culture and traditions. So that is the box description. On the back of the box, that there is not one for. Um, so check it out. The director himself, he actually, though, described this film, The Jingle Dress, as an immigrant story that follows a present day family from a reservation in northern Minnesota who moved to Minneapolis and kind of how each member experiences the culture shock. The Red Elk family in Eigen's film is based on a fictional White Earth Nation family. However, Eigen purposely does not mention White Earth to make the story more inclusive to all bands, which I understand. The White Earth is never mentioned in the film, Eigen says. Uh, I did, I kind of did it all, that on purpose so that people of Red Lake and Leech Lake and all the other reservations might think that it was theirs. And I completely get attempting trying to make it as ambiguous as possible in order to draw as many tribal, uh, different tribes to the film as possible. But if it's really about White Earth Nation, I, I kind of feel that we should really talk about White Earth Nation because I don't know how many people out there know what it is or have he- has maybe even heard of it. So the White Earth Nation is one of the largest uh, Indian groups in Minnesota. And they are part of the Anishinaabe, uh, which means the original people. The Europeans named them Ojibwa. And there's no real no one's really exactly sure uh, how this name developed. So we might need to ask one of those White Ivy League indigenous language experts, eh? Uh, I mean, seriously, do you all have to be experts at everything? I mean, seriously, I, I want to know, if I want to know something about our language I, I, or our culture, you know, I, I go to the elders, uh, the mikos, the, the real deal. But uh, I digress. Uh, perhaps, though, uh, from the Anishinaabe, the word ajib, uh, that might be where it came from. That describes the puckered moccasins uh, worn by the people. Some Europeans had trouble saying Ojibwa and pronounced it instead as Chippewa. So I have no clue where that came from. Chippewa and Ojibwa, they just couldn't pronounce that. Uh, So that is the name that we will use in this history of the White Earth Reservation. Uh, This is very similar to my tribal identification as Muskogee. Uh, You know, when I was growing up, we were Creek. Uh, now it's Muskogee or Muskogee Creek or Upper Creek or Lower Creek. Uh, it's 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 all creek. <laughs> it's all creek to me. Hey, eh? uh, the the White Earth Reservation though it is located uh, in Becker, Clearwater, and uh, Monoman counties in north central Minnesota. Uh, created in 1867 by a treaty between the United States and the Mississippi Band of Chippewa Indians. It is one of seven Chippewa reservations in Minnesota. Although the White Earth uh, heritage, excuse me, uh, although the White Earth Chippewa no longer live as their ancestors did, they have kept alive their uh, tribal heritage. Almost every aspect of their present day life has been strongly influenced by the past. As is true for all Chippewa living in Minnesota, the story of the White Earth people begins in ancient times, in the eastern part of the United States. There, their ancestors lived before coming to the forest and lake country of eastern and northern Minnesota. To understand the history of White Earth Reservation, it is necessary to understand the times that went before. Much, much of the uh, story of American Indian people has been left out of the history books, which really begs the question that why are most U.S. history books European-centered and um, in any indigenous history, which is, The true American history, it's it's usually offered as an elective, uh, probably because most of these books were written by white historians who thought that the history of this land did not begin until Europeans visited it. We as a nation need to change that, but all Indians, including the Chippewa, had rich, full rich cultures long, long before that, and they played a key role in the history of this country and state. Some of the mistakes of white authors have been corrected by the Chippewa historians like William H. Warren whose relatives and descendants lived at the White Earth Reservation. Warren was born in 1825, and he died uh, early at the age of 28, sadly. His father was a New Englander, and his mother was the granddaughter of uh, White Crane uh, Wabuji, a hereditary uh, Chippewa chief at LaPointe, Wisconsin. After arriving in Minnesota in 1845, Warren he lived with the Mississippi Chippewa Band, at Crow Wing and Gull Lake, and he spoke Anishinaabe. He spoke the language perfectly, and he held many long talks with tribal chiefs and elders. And based on the interviews that I found, uh, he began publishing Chippewa stories and legends in a St. Paul newspaper called the Minnesota Democrat back in 1851. A year later, he wrote a history of the Ojibwe Nation, uh, residents of the White Earth Reservation, also have written their own history in 1886. Uh, They established a reservation newspaper called The Progress, which was later succeeded by the Tomahawk. And these newspapers recorded daily events on the reservation and published many articles on Chippewa customs and traditions. In addition to written history, another method of learning about the past, of course, is through archaeology. And this is the study of objects left behind by ancient peoples. Since objects sometimes decay, archaeologists never find a complete record and archaeology gives only a partial you know, picture of the past. Uh, Indian people really rely on still a third method, which is oral history, to learn older civilizations and older customs like I was talking about, like written history about the past. Uh, in Chippewa societies, though, uh, assigned storytellers have the duty of passing along the story of the people from one generation to another. And they tell how the earth came to its present form and how how people share the earth with all living things. They believe that knowing the spiritual meaning of events is way more important than knowing exactly when or how things happened. But there are, you know, several other methods uh, of history that can help us learn about the past. But none is complete in itself, really. I mean, even all the methods together don't really paint the whole picture but you know nevertheless learning about the past can help us understand our present and in search of such understanding we got to pick up the story of the chippewa in those distant times when as they say the earth was new and tribal people reigned supreme in north america so i went to the anishinabe web page and it is a fabulous uh uh web page full of all kinds of great information uh there's you know there's language there's stories there's uh uh you know food uh i mean there's just i mean it's it's just chock full of so much that uh i'm kind of jealous i you know i wish a lot of the other tribes uh, including my own would really kind of you know look to them as an example of of what the web what a website should look like cuz i mean it is it is fantastic, but I think it's important to talk just briefly about the, Anishina- the Anishinaabe the Anishinabe migration story. And again, this is I found this on their website, which I can uh, cite at the very end of this this podcast. But it says, uh, "When the seven prophets came to the Ojibwa with instructions about life from the Creator, the people were living in the east on the shores of the great salt water. There were so many people that these words have been told through generations." The people were so many and powerful that if one was to climb the highest mountain and look in all directions, they would not be able to see the end of the Ojibwa nation. Life was full, and there was ample food from the land and sea. Because life was so full, some amongst the people doubted the migration predictions of the prophets, and there was much discussion about the migration. It is now believed that the people, continuing, moved along the southern shore of the St. Lawrence River and that the second major stop was just around what is known today as Niagara Falls. From here, they traveled to what is today Lakes Huron and Erie. It is here that the Ojibwa and the Iroquois uh, confronted each other. The dispute was later settled when the Iroquois gave the Ojibwa a wampum belt made of a special shell. The pipe was shared and a peace was sealed. The people began moving westward again and stopped when they came to a large body of fresh water, as explained in the prophecy. This was probably along the eastern shore of Lake Michigan. At this point, many went off in search of a way across the water. Some went south, and others settled down to wait for more instructions. Generations passed until the people were instructed to travel north. Eventually, they stopped at a place where food grows on water, as told in another prophecy... More and more Ojibwa came to the, to the largest island in this area. Now it is known as Manitoulin Island, until this area became known as the capital of the Ojibwa Nation. For some time, people stayed on the island, and many set off to what is now called Salt-Saint-Marie. Because of the large abundance of food in the area, many people settled here also, and this became the fifth stopping place of the migration. From here, the people split into two large groups, one group following the northern shore of Lake Superior, another large body of water, and another followed the southern shore. The northern group settled on an island, today known as Spirit Island, at the west end of the big lake. Some of the southern groups also settled here, where they found, quote, the food that grows on water. That's called Wild Rice, and that is a big part of the movie that we'll talk about here in a bit. It is believed to be a sacred gift from the Creator. This became the sixth major stopping place of the Ojibwa people. But something was still missing. One of the prophets had spoken of a turtle-shaped island at the end of their journey. The southern group had seen such an island on their journey. The people returned and settled on the island known as today as Madeline Island calling it Monigwang Adoning or the place that was dug. At last, the migration had found their sacred ground. It is thought it took about 500 years to complete this journey, which began around 900 AD. The Ojibwe people have been living in the area now called Minnesota since 1400 AD, 400 plus years before any European ever set foot in this area this reason, it's it's this reason why I still feel we are so connected to the land and that uh, it still, you know, truly, rightfully belongs to us, the, the, the tribes. We were here first. We, we've taken care of it. We took care of it first. We uh, know how to, you know, grow things on it. We know how to... Uh, find food on it. We know how to make the best of it, and for for people to say you know that that uh, they they did us a favor or that they were part of you know the west this Western culture, uh, it, it just it really rubs me the wrong way. Like I said, I mean we were here, you know you know hundreds of years before any Europeans uh, ever arrived. But uh, I wanted to talk just a little bit too. You know once they established. Uh, the, uh, once they were established in the area, the Anishinabe uh, formed a clan system, and this following information is provided from the William Warren book, The History of the Ojibwa, and this is a direct quote from him. It says, uh, I, I'm ass- Well, I'm assuming everyone listening to this podcast is familiar with the Native American clan system. But if you're still cutting your teeth on native culture, then you really need to listen to this at least. Uh, within each tribe are smaller groups called clans. Uh, each member of a clan generally shares a common ancestor and are considered related to one another. Uh, that's how we have so many cousins. You know, I'm Deer Clan. But anyway, uh, uncles and aunties, uh, I mean, we have. You know, everybody's related to us. I mean, we're, we we're everybody's family. You know what I mean? But uh, each clan has its own symbol uh, or spirit that gave the clan its name. The Ojibwe names for the clans uh, or dudum, as they're called uh, in Ojibwe, uh, was not necessarily the common name for the animal. Instead, each name was for a special trait of that animal uh, in the same way each clan had a special task in the village. There are seven original clans in the Ojibwa Nation, uh, Crane, Loon, Fish, Bear, Martin, Deer, or Hoof Clan, and Bird. So we'll start really, like I said, first with the uh, Crane and Loon, and the, all the information that, that you're hearing now uh, came from that William Warren book called History of the Ojibwe. Uh, the Crane and Loon clans were given the power of chieftainship. They were given uh, the people with n- the with natural qualities the abilities for leadership. Uh, each of these two clans claim to be the original chief clan, but they do work together, uh, and by working together, uh, the two clans gave the people a very balanced government, with each serving as a check on the other. The next one is the fish clan. Uh, the people of the fish clan are the teachers and the scholars. They help children develop skills and healthy spirits. They also drew on their knowledge to solve disputes between leaders of the crane and loon clans. The next one is called the Bear Clan and the Bear Clan, uh, they're the largest clan uh, in in Jibwa they're called Mukwa, the Mukwa Clan. Uh, But Bear Clan members uh, were the war chiefs and warriors Uh, and they were known for their thick black hair that never whitened even in old age. Bear Clan members were the strong and steady police and legal guardians. They were known for generally having bad tempers but they were brave in battle. Bear Clan members spent a lot of time patrolling the land surrounding the villages and doing so they learned which roots, barks, and plants could be used for medicines to treat the ailments of their people. The next one is the Martin Clan. The people of the Martin Clan are hunters and food gatherers and warriors of the Ojibwa. You see, long ago warriors fought to defend their village uh, or hunting territory and they became known as the master strategists in planning the defense of their people. They were also the pipe bearers and the message carriers. The deer or hoof clan, uh, they're gentle like deer and moose or caribou for whom the clan is named. They are very caring people. They care for one another by making sure the community had proper housing, recreation, clothing, food. The hoof clan people are poets and pacifists and they avoid all harsh words. Uh, The bird clan uh, represents spiritual leaders of the people and gave the nation its vision of well-being and its highest development of the spirit. The people of the bird clan were also said to possess the characteristics of the eagle, which is the head of their clan. The Ojibwa believe that members of the bird clan pursued the highest elevations of the mind, just as the eagle pursues the highest elevations of the sky. The Wolf Clan. Uh, Wolf Clan uh, produced the Scouts. The Wolf Clan members live mostly around uh, Millilocks and St. Croix, and it's not an originally uh, an Anishinaabe clan. Um, it actually came uh, to the Anishinaabe through inter- intermarriage with the Dakotas. The Eagle Clan is-, is another clan that is not originally an Anishinaabe clan, and it came to the Anishinaabe through intermarriage with the white man and clans are handed down from your father. And if your father was a white man, then you belong to the Eagle Clan. There's, there's no question about it, uh, no, no uh, fussing about it. That's who you belong to. Uh, the Next uh, on my list of interesting things that I found on the website was just kind of how they break up the seasons and harvesting. Once again, you know, to the Ojibwa, the Nishinaabe people, uh, it, it's a huge part of the culture, the the coming of the seasons and the changing of the seasons. So uh, I always like to start with spring because that's that's their new year. Um, so that's that's what they 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 consider springtime, the the new year. So when the ice and snow thaw, it's the beginning of the new year for the Ojibwa as they move their camp into the forest and. To gather maple sap for making sugar, the whole family participated in the work, and they used birch bark baskets to gather the sap. At nighttime, they went fishing in shallow waters and used uh, burning torches to see fish in the lakes, and it was the most happiest time of the year um, after that long, cold winter. Today, tribal members still harvest maple syrup, uh, but today they use metal or plastic containers for gathering and big iron kettles for boiling it. Um, They also still go fishing at night, but uh, they use electric flashlights uh, to see the fish instead of the old-school birch bark torch. Uh, Summertime, uh, the green leaves and the trees and the lush forest come alive in the short summer. Long ago, the original people peeled birch bark from the trees to make baskets, houses, and canoes. They also fished, picked berries, gardened, and gathered uh, the food that they needed. Summer tasks also included working in the cornfields, gathering and drying of berries, crushing berry cakes, the main source of all winter nutrients, especially vitamin C, not supplied by meat and grain. There were raspberries, cranberries, blueberries, sarsaparilla vine, uh, they called that rabbit root, and butternuts. The elders were the teachers of the children and were respected in the community. Today, elders continue to teach young people how to gather the birch bark and how to make baskets. Summer is the time for celebrations and families gather together for powwows to dance and just visit with relatives. Fall is when the leaves turn red and orange and the original people of the Great Lakes region move their camp to lakes and rivers to gather wild rice. And again, that wild rice is a, is a very uh, big part of this movie and we'll talk about it uh, here in just a bit. But uh, the men would harvest wild rice, and the women would process the rice. They would dry, roast, and winnow the rice, for this was the staple food throughout the year. It was also the time to dry deer meat and fish to store for the long winter months ahead. The children helped with the activities and also gathered firewood to stay warm. Uh, and They still had time, though, to play games like stickball. Uh, today, Ojibwe family still participate in the wild rice harvest and go deer hunting together. So we, we do have to talk about the wild rice, which I do want to kind of get just a little bit further into that, uh, because there's several scenes, uh, with John Red Elk, uh, harvesting this wild rice, uh, in the movie, I should say John Red Elk is a, is a Spencer's character in the movie, but, uh, there's, there's a few scenes and several mentions of this wild rice uh, throughout the film. Uh, so watching these scenes in the film, it really kind of piqued my interest and it made me hit the old interwebs looking for answers. The wild rice of the White Earth Reservation is an all-natural grain that grows untamed in the cool, clear waters of northern Minnesota. The rice kernel itself is actually a cereal grain uh, that's produced from an annual watergrass plant that rises to the height of... Probably like maybe three to eight feet probably. And the seed pods emerge just above the water surface. The wild rice is uh, uh, one of only two cereal grains that are native to to North America. And it is the state grain of Minnesota. Which makes me wonder what other states have uh, state grains. But the... uh, uh, I think it's pronounced... And again, I apologize uh, because my Ojibwa is not... Uh, up to par, uh, well, neither is my, my, my Muskogee either, but that, that's here. That's either, neither here nor there, but uh, is Manomen, I believe, is, is how you pronounce that, is the Ojibwe word for wild rice, and it translates to good berry. The the rice uh, is not only a staple in the diets of the native people for generations, it is also considered a spiritual food, uh, it's, it's considered uh, a gift from the great spirit or the great creator. To this day, they continue to uh, only hand harvest the rice with non motorized canoes uh, to help preserve the all natural product that they have and again there's there's a couple of scenes uh, in the movie with uh, them doing this and again they 're using you know canoes and like a, it looks like a machete of some kind to, to cut and separate the rice. Uh, by hand harvesting, the on, uh, only the mature ripe kernels are taken, ensuring the quality and taste and leaving the remaining immature kernels to ripen and fall into the water to ensure next year's crop. Uh, the product, um, it, it supposedly has an earthy, kind of nutty flavor. It's super high in protein, super high in fiber, amino acids, and is very low in fat. It is not to be mistaken with the genetically altered cultivated or patty wild rice that you kind of see uh prepackaged, or uh, you know, in the grocery stores. Uh, but it is widely produced primarily in Minnesota and California. Uh, again, they don't use any kind of pesticides or insecticides uh, and, and other chemicals. It's literally uh, all natural, uh, and they take a lot of great pride in the fact that they have a uh, naturally organic product. And uh, I think, like I said, you can go to the website, um, the Ojibwa Nation website, and purchase some of this wild rice. So I'm definitely, I I think I'm going to have to do that. Uh, uh, again, this, watching them gather this rice and watching them prepare this rice and reading about this rice and researching this rice and, and how important it is to the people Uh, And just the the description of it uh, on the website, uh, it really makes me want to try it. So uh, I'm going to maybe for a future uh, podcast, I'll I'll have some of this rice and let you know uh, exactly uh, what it tastes like. But uh, as I digress, uh, winter uh, obviously being the final month, uh, that's when the lakes freezes, the snow falls. The original people of the Great Lakes region really struggled to survive through the long uh, through the long winter. People left the large summer villages and they moved into smaller family groups. They moved their winter camps by using snowshoes to walk on top of the snow. Uh, Winter wigwams were covered with bark mats and brush insulation or a a thick cover of dirt. Uh, During this time, the men hunted and fished and trapped to get food for the community the women's main winter activities during this time were kind of scraping and, and tanning the hides of animals to make clothes. Uh, meanwhile, the elders would, will be telling their stories and, and the legends to children. Today, the Ojibwa people still fish uh, with spears through the ice and trap uh, according to the season. But now, obviously, they use snowmobiles or ATVs to get around. Uh, and they certainly have adapted new tools to survive the long uh, northern winter uh, but soon it'll become springtime again, and the traditional activities will continue through the cycle for the four seasons. So that's a little bit about uh, the seasons and the harvesting uh, of the Ojibwe people. So, oh, so uh, now that we've kind of finished up a little bit about the historical, uh, you know, part of the of the podcast, uh, the Ojibwe people, study the Ojibwe people. Uh, I'm going to get the the rocks going again, and we're going to really kind of delve more into the film. So appreciate you guys. Give me just one second to uh, to heat up the rocks here. Give me a second. All right, there we go. Yep, that's what I'm talking about. All right, getting that. That good heat going. All right, so let's talk a little bit about how the film began. Uh, it all started in Minneapolis. Did I say Minneapolis? I, I certainly did. Uh, long before the really just horrific uh, George Floyd incident, uh, Minneapolis was known mainly as the birthplace of Prince Bob Dylan and Jesse the Body of Ventura. Uh, not to mention the shooting locations of such cinematic classics as *Purple Rain*, uh, *The Mighty Ducks*, *Grumpy Old Men*, *Fargo*, and one of my personal favorites, the Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, family vehicle *Jingle All the Way*. The Jingle Dress was uh, shot in 2013 in Northwest, or excuse me, Northeast Minnesota. Uh, there's a lot of familiar Twin City faces that appear throughout. Uh, there's a local musician there, uh, Willie Murphy. He has a cam- cameo as a uh, guitar-picking bartender, as well of many uh, Minneapolis landmarks, uh, locations in and around Northeast Jackson Park, uh, plus the Nicolette Island up here in the feature film. I, I really wish, though, that they could have squeezed in maybe Charles Schultz or, or definitely Harry Dean Anderson and uh, the Stray Cats uh, in there somewhere, but unfortunately it just didn't fit. Uh, this was the first uh, feature film, though, to, to be completed with funds from a tax that supports the arts in Minnesota. Uh, the film received, uh, uh, I think, a $250,000 from the Legacy Arts and Cultural Heritage Production Reimbursement Program, which covered most of the film's budget. Uh, the Legacy Arts and Cultural Heritage, or the LACH, or LACH, maybe, LAC, Production a reimbursement program. It was established by the Minnesota Film and TV and Independent Filmmaker Project. Uh, Minnesota was uh, designed to support. It's designed to support professional, you know, mid-career filmmakers. Uh, their their feature-length narratives or or even long-form uh, documentary projects. That kind of align with the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage goals, so you'll definitely have to, you know, really keep this in mind when when viewing the film. I think the the point needs to be driven home that you know this is, uh, I would say a mid career uh a film film to just just to put it you know kindly. There's not only a few technical issues with the overall story uh, sequencing and, and character arcs. There's a lot of really kind of head scratching editing decisions. There's a lot of you know bizarre dissolves and, and camera moves, and there's there's a lot of plot holes to, to this film. But again, don't don't let me dissuade you from from checking it out. I mean, at a, at its heart, it's it's very much an amateur film, and it could definitely use a, a bit of a polish and a punch up. But it's. You know, keep in mind it's it's an excellent, uh, excellent amateur film, and it's you know more than than I ever could do you know uh, with a camera. Uh, the movie uh, is the result really of a chance meeting that Igan had uh, many years prior with a Native American man at a stoplight, and I don't know about your city where you're where you're listening at, but if you're familiar with the Tulsa area uh i mean really it's it's kind of a sad state of affairs cuz you you can really hardly pull up to any intersection in this day and age without coming face to face or in my my uh my case uh side eye to side eye maybe with uh, people on the corner uh you know asking for money or they have the signs out there you know uh hungry or or it's just it's hard for me to look at that cuz i don't know how really uh, you mean how, where I'm supposed to be looking or, or you know, what I'm supposed to do there in those situations. I just kind of look straight ahead. But uh, in this particular instance with Eigen, the, he said the man was standing on the street corner and he just kind of began to approach Eigen's car. And at first, he thought he was going to, you know, hit him up for something. But instead, he just kind of pointed at his lips, at, pointed with his lips at him. Uh, and And Egan says you know he, he just kind of looked at me and he smiled and he he winked his eye and in this most sort of mystical, charming kind of way, and then he just sort of wandered off he said, uh, but this meeting that he had it, it sparked an idea for Egan uh, who was fresh off of years of traveling the world and he was learning about other cultures and and uh he he has a quote here that says you know i 've done a lot of traveling bumming around the world because I really like foreign cultures." Um, He said, I really have a sort of, you know, uh, I realized we have a a sort of equally foreign culture right here that most people have absolutely no contact or insight into. Uh, It's an extremely interesting, a very old culture that's right here with us. He said, I'd like people to get the insight into this very interesting culture. It's about recognizing the deep validity of other cultures. All people have their humanists. Uh, humanness in common, but people in different countries and different cultures have their different way of getting on in their life, and that's how they do their dance in life. so um, you know just like I said this this little brief encounter is is the you know the the how this the spark that started this whole this whole film. So he says I said he he went home and he started you know writing a script about the culture that that he was describing and uh he kind of put it aside and he he went off to make a couple of award-winning documentaries about singers and civil rights activists pete Seeger and harry belafonte uh but then he when he got finished with that he, he sort of picked it back up and it says it took him about a year to finish it and you'll be able to catch on pretty quick that you know when you're viewing the film that it was probably written in patches because there's characters and there's conflicts and they're introduced in one scene and they're either never mentioned again or never seen again or, or it's like just they're, they're solved, you know, with just a, a sentence. You know, we have a huge, you know, with like 12 minutes of the film, there's this huge, you know, third act that, that you think is going to unfold, but it just sort of stops so there's that, uh, you know, or like I said, pivotal pop plot points are kind of concluded with just a single line of dialogue, you know, minutes, literally minutes after it was presented. But uh, the idea for the film on Native Americans uh, might have faded, but it sprang to life a couple of years ago. Uh, it was when a friend mentioned that the state, le- that state legacy fund money that was available for Minnesota themed films. And, uh, said, uh, God, I I wrote a script, you know, like 15 years ago. That's kind of Minnesota centric. Uh, so he said he went and he got it and he gave it to the Minnesota film board and, and they were like, yeah, we, we, we like this and we're in. Uh, so when Eigen he set out to portray native Americans on the screen, he knew that, you know, as a white filmmaker, he was treading on very, very thin ice. Uh, he says, you know, the really the most important thing that he wanted the native American culture to, to was to like the film he says. And he says, when I wrote the script, it, it's a made up story, but I made it a point to talk to native American friends of mine and to get them to vet the, the story because I really wanted that native American wanted the native American population to like it. And that was very important to me. Uh, so the very first thing he did, which I was a very wise move is he recruited a local talent, Stacy thunder and she portrays the the family matriarch, Elsie, and she kind of uh, helped oversee the project. Uh, you know, her background is she's trained as a lawyer, but she, like I said earlier, she hosts uh, a public television show called Native Report, but she's also an actor, and she said that she had turned down similar scripts in the past just because they're so ill-informed about Native life, and that's really the whole point behind this podcast is to kind of you know, shed some light on that. But she says that the jingle dress was different, and she said even though it was a non-native screenwriter, uh, his script didn't make me cringe. She said uh, it didn't make me roll my eyes. I thought it was a good story, and I think with really good actors and and uh, actors who really know what it's like, we could shape that into something that came from us. A lot of scripts are written by people who have you know their hearts in the right place, but are so misinformed. And they have a false perception about the history of Native American people. Uh, Thunder was recruited by Eigen to be an advisor and then help recruit talent for the cast and crew, which was largely Native American. And after reading that screenplay, she decided to audition for a role in the film. And she said I liked it, and I thought it was a nice story. It was a contemporary story, which is a first, actually. Thunder said, "Most of the scripts that you know Native American actors get are period pieces, uh, and there's so much desire from Indian country to have our stories heard. Uh, we're natural storytellers, so it's just a matter of doing it, and it will certainly catch on." Uh, Thunder says, "You know that the Hollywood portrayal of Native people has fueled inaccurate stereotypes and has dehumanized Native people." And her hope was that viewers will leave the jingle dress having learned that Native American people are you know just like everybody else, that they're rehumanized. So for better or worse, uh, it seems most films about the contemporary Native experience have to have an educational element, uh, you know, seeking to help people outside native culture gain some some understanding of it. Uh, the jingle dress, it shows a real side to our lives today uh, that we're still here and still still very real and by watching the red elk family uh viewers get to learn about one unique indigenous culture and tradition which is very important but that they'll also see native peoples uh that are also human beings like them who have and share the same feelings, the same hopes, dreams, goals and challenges. Uh, eigen he said that uh, you know he was needing the help of the Ojibwa people because he wanted to make the film as authentic as possible. So he cast a man by the name of Thomas Kane. Uh, he's the Ponima from, uh, from Ponyma, uh on the Red Lake Indian Reservation as Uncle Hawk, and he kind of shows up towards the end of the film. And uh, Kane's character, he gives, he's the, he's the guy that gives you know uh 8-year-old Rose uh her indian name in the film and he says you know it's a reenactment of a naming ceremony it's it's not an actual naming ceremony uh because uh you you it's not allowed you cannot film real ceremonies but he says i think it's about time they start showing the anishinaabe people in film uh you know in the past dances with wolves was based on the lakota people And it left us out of the limelight. Uh, It's an untapped resource for the film industry. And that's uh, all words spoken by uh, Mr. Kane. Eichen said that uh, while it's a rarity in some states that people in Minnesota are actually, you know, have the opportunity to brush up against Native American culture. So with his movie, he was, you know, able to get a handle on contemporary Native American culture and, you know, kind of present it to the mass audience. It took about twenty one days to shoot the film and it took about six months to edit it. Now while Eigen had an editor, uh his name is Daniel J. Geiger or Geiger, uh I just hope I pronounced that right. Uh, you know, even though he had that that editor and supposedly they sat shoulder to shoulder working on it, uh while watching this film, uh, you know, full disclosure, the editing is probably the the hardest pill to swallow. I mean, it, it does, it starts out fantastic and there's fades and there's overlays. The sound design is, is really good, but it soon fades uh, into a lot, just this myriad of quick cuts and intersplice scenes and you're jumping back and forth. And, and by the time you try to tie the scenes together, uh, it's already over and you're you're kind of left pondering, you know, what you just saw and, and you know, on, on, Unfortunately, maybe not unfortunately, but at least unintentionally uh, laughing out loud. You're, you're kind of left laughing out loud. I know I did in a few spots there. But uh, it's all in good fun. And so, like, you know, I'm not even really sure uh, if the issue was with the original script or, or you know, maybe outweighing his wallet or, or maybe some of the scenes didn't get shot uh, due to, the, you know, like I said, his, his vision just being too big. But uh, it, it does. it really It's a wonderful story, and he's trying to do probably just a little too much with it. Uh, he, he, I think he should have just sort of focused, you know, just kind of keyed in some, some of the characters there. But reading everything prior to viewing, it really gave me the impression that this was going to be kind of like a fish out of water story, you know, told through the eyes of eight-year-old Rose. But the film really kind of bounces from character to character and situation to situation without really ever fleshing out any one particular thing. Uh, I mean, in this, in this movie, we have a murder mystery. We have an alcoholic slash possible abusive uncle. We have a crooked art dealer. We have a local mafia kingpin and mafia, I guess, who shakes down local Korean store owners for protection money. We have spirit-infused caves containing thousand-year-old pictographs. We have an armed robbery resulting in a killing. We have the death of a family patriarch. The struggles of unemployment, labor union rights, and even maybe uh, uh, a transgender pit bull in there as well. Uh, it sounds like a television miniseries. Uh, I mean, this, this thing could have sounds like it's you know like a a mini movie, but it, you, you're going to be shocked to learn that all of that takes place in just 98 minutes so again uh keep keep that thing in mind you know as you're watching it i mean it's definitely an amateur film but it's a really really good amateur film and it is one that i do recommend that you check out so uh i guess let's talk about the movie uh if you want to uh that's kind of why you're here uh, so, uh, one hour and nine minutes in, and now we're actually going to talk about the movie. So if you haven't seen it yet, like I said, go to, uh, www.thejingledress.com and download it. Now, like I said, I'm a physical media kind of guy. I, my DVD, Blu-ray VHS collection easily numbers into the hundreds. Uh, and you know, even every year the Hookedy and I, we kind of get together some of the movies that we don't really watch anymore and we you know purge our yearly investment and in just to buy more movies uh with the streaming and the downloading i mean we're just there's nothing else to do right now uh, there's no, really no places to go so we're, we're pretty crazy with it but this film is just going to run you a mere 10 bucks for a download and like i said it's totally worth it uh, keep in mind you'll be supporting not only independent film but also native american produced filmmakers actors uh you know, crew members. Uh, And and certainly, it'll bring awareness to more indigenous-made movies. So, go support the cause. Do it, Bubba. Uh, Do it. Anyway, go watch it, because I am seriously just about to spoil the crap out of it for you. So... Alright, let's get into it. The uh, the film opens with this really beautiful fade-in overlay shot of this uh, girl, Rose, who's 8 years old. And she's kind of sat back amongst the changing fall leaves. And she's staring directly into the camera. And the shot is backed with this really hauntingly beautiful score by David Whetstone. And uh, I couldn't find uh, much information about him other than... The films that he had worked, the previous films that he had worked on with with Igan, but it's really the kind of opening that, that pulls a viewer right in. It's just a super gorgeous visual, and we also hear the sounds of nature uh, gently chirping along as the guitar plays this this long, uh, you know, metal melody. And uh, there's this uh, narration or this voiceover. Uh, by Rose, and she's introducing us to her dad and Uncle Nobby, who are in the river canoeing, uh, river canoeing, the river canoe, and they're going wild ricing. Uh, and again, this is the first of several mentions of it, and it's within the first you know minute of the film. So you can really tell off right off the bat, as the scene plays out, how detrimental and important uh, the harvest of the wild rice is to the culture this shot is is is, like i said it's very um voyeuristic i should say i guess is a way to put it its ambience lets the viewer you know observe the old ways of the ojibwa the two men are like they're sitting in this canoe and the scene's playing out um with the water kind of lapping up against the side of the boat and there's there's not a word there's no word between them i mean at least for maybe 30 seconds 60 seconds it's it's quite a stretch of time. Um, but then you get this, uh, again, this uh, voiceover that, from, by Rose, and she's mentioning, you know, kind of how they're just really itching to get off the water, to get out on the water, but they had to wait for it to be ready, which she's talking about the wild rice. And she says that they're very, very good at waiting. And the, the theme of waiting and, and patience is one of those running themes throughout the entire film, and we'll kind of get there as we go along. But you get a series of shots involving John Red Elk and Uncle Nobby, played by Chaske Spencer and Larry Yazzie, and they're they're cutting rice. And Red Elk tells his brother that in the springtime, the family is going to be leaving the res and heading south, just like their Uncle Norton did. And this revelation really seems to have no effect on Uncle Nobby at all, because uh, all he really says is, "Sure, Gabby, today." What I love about that is, you know, there's not a really a word spoken between them for like the first like minute of this film, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, John tells him you know what his plan is, and that's all that Uncle Nobby has to say is, you "Sure, are Gabby, today." It's, it's kind of as if he was sort of expecting this moment, but he refused to acknowledge it or it was just one of those things that, that nobody really wanted to discuss. But Red Elk, uh, he tells the story uh, to Nobby about how the authorities found their uncle had died under really kind of mysterious circumstances. And that the last time that he had spoken to, to Uncle Norton was just shortly before John had shipped out to Kuwait, which is again why I believe this film takes place in the 90s, uh, mid 90s. Uh, armed with this knowledge, like I said, it's it's kind of unclear really wh- when the movie takes place, but there's zero evidence of any kind of you know modern conveniences like computers or cell phones or 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 anything like that. So I'm kind of like I said, assuming that it takes place in the mid '90s or early '90s maybe. Uh, but it seems that Uncle Norton is also some kind of holy man because just before John left. Uh, to ship out. He gave him a medicine bag. And John believes that the medicine bag. Uh, is what saved his life. Uh, over in Kuwait. So uh, he vows that he owes. Uncle Norton for that. And that he's going to head south. And find out exactly what happened. From atop the, the tallest tree. In the riverbank. Listening in. Rose um, climbs down. And kind of starts walking down this trail. Uh, and we can hear. That she's, or excuse me, we can really kind of tell that she's one with the environment um, as she, you know, we see the eagle flying above her head. We, we see a red-eared slider, the, the turtle, cross her path. And uh, recent the recently shed skin of a snake, kind of, she's holding it in her hand. And it really gives the impression that, that Rose is, is, a, is a special little girl um, who's really going to be the linchpin to this story and uh definitely an important member of the family, she's quickly rounded up by her older brother, Chris, who was played uh by her real life brother mo uh, Hohenstein and uh this is also his one and only film credit according to internet movie database and the two you you know, like i said share this very special bond. his big brother gives little sister a piggyback ride, and um he calls her peanut and you know they have this kind of relationship that's you know you can tell that's it's just a very special bond um, that they have. There's no squabbling or, or hassling or wrestling between the two. It's just a very nurturing moment between an older brother and his younger sister. But they walk up on the family as they're loading up the car with all their belongings. Uh, the family packs the Indian car with the mini fridge. There's dressers. There's like this wood dinner table that's, I like, uh, complete with mismatched chairs. There's tarps. There's tarps. There's curtains and i love like the little touches of realism here i mean they're they're like in this really you know tricolor you know beat up rusted car and they're pulling a homemade trailer and all their stuff is piled up on it like the clampets on their way to beverly hills uh you can tell the family you know by their possessions you know really only has the essentials uh, uh because uh in most, you know, native cultures, all you really need is family. And that's really all you need. And the, so that they're not really too keen on uh, you know, having the nicest dinner table and the best curtains. Uh, they've got each other and that's really what's important. But young Rose, uh, she starts kinda of staring out the window that there's this, this fade in shot or this uh uh crossfade shot of young Rose and she's staring out the window and the car chugs along down the road with this little white smoke spewing out the exhaust and they pull into the nearest casino (laughs) and who are they looking for? Not their auntie, not this time. They're looking for grandma and they walk in and, or John walks in and they find her and he finds her sitting at the old one arm bandit and she's plugging quarters uh, and she's, you know, decked out in her biggest beaded earrings and her finest fringe jacket and when grandma sees john she kind of gives him an unsettled look and it's kind of the same kind of feeling that you got from uncle nobby cuz she knows what john's getting ready to say and she just kind of stops him and she just gives john a blanket she hands him a blanket and she tells him that this blanket belonged to to uncle norton and she says you know when you find out what happens that you make sure don't believe everything that you hear that uh, Uncle Norton kind of went his own way under his own pretenses and uh, we get another shot back in the car Rose tells us again with another uh, narration that Uncle Norton's quilt is very special and, and it is blankets uh, in our culture uh, have very much to do with life and death and, and even sometimes beyond um, and she says that's what spirits do so I'm trying, you know I'm trying to cover as much uh of the culture as I possibly can. Uh so I just thought I'd, I might just pause for a second um to talk a little bit about the gift uh of the quilt or the blanket. Uh quilting was introduced to Native Americans by missionaries who sought to, you know, quote unquote, civilize the natives by teaching them traditional European homemaking skills. Uh following the the treaty era, and the movement of Native people to reservations and Native children to boarding schools in the late 19th century. Uh, Native American girls learned European-American style sewing and quilting at boarding schools, like I said, as part of the the civilizing process. Uh, What that was is it's something that kind of was aimed to assimilate uh, Native Americans to the European-American lifestyles. Uh, Native women learned quilting from European-American missionaries, settlers, and government field matrons, uh, but they already had a good foundation built on the sewing and artistic skills previously developed through creating and embellishing their own clothing with quill work and beadwork designs so they already had this you know uh, this this foundation of, of of sewing but they wanted them to do it the, the european style um, although women from the plains nation you know over time became well known for their star quilts due to the significance of the morning star among native american cultures and the artistry of the quilts they were likely influenced you know by european and european american star quilt patterns uh native american quilters soon found creative ways to incorporate their own cultural designs into the quilts star quilts sewn by women of many different native nations um, were used in everyday life as well as special ceremonies Some Native American artists have turned to quilt making, uh, bringing us some really stunning scenic quilts with cultural motifs. Uh, While it is interesting to look at the cultural connections in Native American quilts, you got to be aware uh, many of the quilts made were similar but not identical to patterns and styles that American women in general have been making over the years. In fact, Native American women quilt for, you know, really much the same reasons as any woman quilts. Uh, They give them as wedding gifts and baby gifts for family use, to raise money for organizations, for personal satisfactions, and in some cases, uh, to sell. Um, Some prefer quilting alone, while others enjoy quilting with others. As quilt historian, and I did this research for you, as quilt historian, uh, you can seriously... uh, Like I said, if you can seriously believe there is a thing, Jill Hemming points out, quote, Just as there is no quintessential African-American quilt, there is really no definitive Native American quilt, no matter how hard scholars may be looking for it. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but it is what it is. This is the quote, so um, don't, don't hate me. I didn't say it. The following information, though, that that I've been giving you, um, it all comes from this really gorgeous book. Um, It's called Stitched from the Soul, uh, and it's it's about slave quilts from the antebellum South. Um, African-American made quilts in the United States um, at least since the late 1700s. Although Africans did not bring a knowledge of bed quilts originally to the United States, they did have experience in piecing, and embroidery and weaving and applique and men were often the textile artists in africa but slave owners uh were you know usually insisted uh, on the the division of labor Um, that meant that enslaved african-american women did all the sewing weaving and quilting and the men did uh, all the carpentry blacksmithing and shoemaking and, uh, all the manual labor, basically, uh, there is evidence though, uh, of some preserved quilts, uh, were made by slaves for their owners, uh, slaves engaged in many different quilting styles. Like I said, including pieced, uh, appliqued, embroidered, uh, whole cloth and reverse applique. So it may not be so much the kind of quilts made, uh, as the use, it may not, like I'm trying to read this from the, from the book here. It may not be so much the kind of quilts made as the use of quilts as gifts that reflects Native American culture. The, the giving of gifts, though, is an important part of Native American communities. Uh, you know, Gifts are, are given at uh, baby naming ceremonies, weddings, powwows, graduations, funerals uh, for athletic achievement, as well as to honor veterans. And it is significant that quilts are common gifts at these events. Uh, you know, Native Americans have not only embraced the art of quilting, expanding it in both design and form, but they have also demonstrated that the gift of the quilt is indeed a thoughtful and everlasting gift. End quote. Like I said, check out that book. It's really, it's a gorgeous book. It's one of those books that's bittersweet, obviously, but, um, you know, as far as the historical value in it, um, it's 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 just, it's amazing what, what they were able to do um, without the conveniences of you know, modern technology. But back to the movie. The family, uh they're not on the road for long, uh, before one of the old wobbly bald tires blows out. Uh as they're stranded along the desolate highway examining the vehicle, uh Elsie, who's who's the mom, played by Stacy Thunder, she asks John where the flat is, and of course it's in the trailer buried under all the stuff. Uh, and that's something that's completely out of my playbook. I, I mean, I once tried to change a flat on on the highway in my Jeep, only discovered that the, the wrong donut was in the Jeep the entire five years that I owned it. But uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, we're treated to this wonderful little moment in the film where, as John is fixing the flat, the family eat their lunch at the kitchen table uh, with the chairs they've pulled up from the trailer and they've sort of set it up just like they would at home, you know, but they're on the shoulder of the road. Like I said, it's a really super keen moment, and it's one that I really, you know, thinking back, I don't think I've ever seen something like that uh, in a film. Uh, And it's definitely a wonderful reminder that no matter where you are, that you're always home, you know, as long as you have uh, your loved ones and your family. And Aigen certainly drives that point home um, when the car pulls away and the dining set is just left perfectly set Uh, including with like salt and pepper and I mean, it's just set sitting there, uh, the dining table and chairs fixed up on the road, but into the night they drive and Rose gives us a little bit more voiceover and she's, you know, leaving us with a story from grandma about how the city can be a stranger, but if you try, you can make it a friend and to always keep your mind focused and your eyes wide open there's just lots of wonderful shots in Minneapolis as the family enters this big strange place. There's like storefronts and there's street lit tunnels, glass pedestrian bridges, bustling sidewalks, police lights and uh, sadly homelessness. Uh, and through the lens of cinematographer Greg Winter who certainly knows his way around both a camera and Minneapolis. Um, having previously worked on the Prince vehicle Graffiti Bridge, um, you certainly get a feel for how life uh, is going to be changing for the Red Elks. Uh, the family is a long way from the humbling, comforting, peaceful surroundings of the reservation. Uh, even driving up to Annie, Janet, and Uncle Rick's house much later in the evening, the, the music has, kind of changes from this you know, light-hearted acoustic melody, this traveling melody, I guess, to, to a, a lot harder hip-hop, soul, slash, funk, fusion, jam. Uh, just that little musical cue, it lets the viewers know that the world the family um, has known um, has definitely is definitely shifting. One more interesting side note, as you'll discover while viewing, that there there's several occasions when characters we don't know or really haven't been introduced to, they kind of oddly walk into a scene and they're featured prominently in the background, and you're either you know waiting for them to say something or be introduced or to interject or, or something. But usually it's nothing um they just sort of stand there and kind of look goofy um at what's going on uh in the foreground uh, this is the first instance uh that this happens because like during this scene uh, on the porch of rick and janet's house like in the background is this older biracial couple um you know and they're kind of got their arms around each other and they're they're joy, joylessly, like, you know, looking on, they're smiling, they're waving as the family drives up and unloads, but we're never told who they are, um, or even why they're there. Or, you know, much later in the film, you you get another couple shots of them. And, but at this point you, you kind of, like I said, you're waiting for them to, uh, to say something, but it never happens. They're never introduced. They're just there. And like I said, they're just kind of goofily watching and observing. So for right now, uh, as far as the film goes, they're just these real two old, creepy, maybe intoxicated possibly by the looks of it, voyeurists who are kind of side-saddling their neighbor's uh, uh, family coming in. But the next morning, uh, Rose awakens from the living room couch. Um, she's on the living room couch, and she's wakes up. She's kind of confused as to where she finds herself because um, the last time she was awake, she was in the car. And she sleepily, you know, rubs her eyes, and she cautiously steps outside on the porch. And she's confronted with this huge, just really rugged-looking pit bull, this huge pit bull. And this strange, kooky old man kind of walking down the street. And we're going to get to know him a lot later as Uncle Matty. And every time Uncle Matty's on the in, on the screen, I, it, I even talking about it, I, you can probably tell I'm smiling because he's, he's so good in this. But the viewer again is—he will just kind of think like he's just this <laughs> crazy old neighbor or this kooky, weird, you know, strange, you know, batshiv crazy old man or something. But uh, Uncle Rick steps out from behind Rose and he, he tells her, you know, don't get too friendly with that dog. She's eyeing because they're gonna—they're gonna, they're gonna uh, eat him in a in a stew later. And again, it's it's this kind of ribbing that uh, have has always been a huge part of Native culture. I, I you know, they, they say things with such conviction and such serious seriousness. You just you can't really question like, are, is this a rib or are you being serious? And you know, and then a lot of times you'll just see a big smile break out on their face, and it's just all a rib. But it's it's a, like I said, it's a great uh, moment, you know, uh, in the film.
2: You know where I come from? We eat dogs. We eat dirt, too. Puppies, mostly.
0: You do not.
1: Makes a great stew. <laughs> so there's uh, uh, Rick, you know, kind of ribbing uh, a rose, and then you hear Uncle Matty, uh, also in the background, uh, chime in. And uh, the family, uh, right after that, they get acquainted around the breakfast table and we're introduced to some. More characters, teenage cousins uh, Chris and Danny, and kind of the urban and res worlds collide when Danny and uh, Rick notice John kind of sitting at the end of the table, and he's gnawing on this this huge piece of moose meat, uh, like this real barbaric Neanderthal. He's like tearing it off and like with his teeth, and he's like you know half of it's like shredded. And he's ha- it's hanging out of his mouth. Uh, and Rick kinda sits down at the table uh and he's kinda miffed and he sort of carries this chip on his shoulder through the whole whole movie and he says uh you know if the planning if the family uh, is planning on making it down here then they need to change their ways. And I really can't quite get what he says if he's saying res boys or res bows. Um I'm not really sure, but he says something along the lines of, of you resbo resbos or res boys. I can't really make it out. I uh, need to change their ways. And then you have good old uncle Matty, who has also joined the family and he's, he's kind of there with a quick quip replying to what Rick had just said, that the real problem, uh, isn't the family changing is that he needs to change because he's never had any ways to change. Uh, you know, this kind of upsets Rick and, and he gets up ready to leave for work at their old roofing job. Uh, given the introduction of, you know, Rick earlier in the scene, you know, it comes across as him just kind of being a dick for no reason He seems almost embarrassed by the family at the table or put out that they're even there. And, uh, you know, jaded Rick has, you know, gotten John a job with the construction crew. You know, he feels like he was sort of forced to do that probably. I mean, just the way he comes across. He doesn't say that, but he just kind of, you know, comes across that way. Uh, He's like, I put my, you know, neck out on the line for you, and, you know, I vouch for you. And he's always reminding John constantly That, you know, like he, like he owes him something, um, you know, but you just, again, I don't, I don't quite get it, but you know, if it was me and if you're going to put your wife's family up for a few months, you know, I don't think this is the way you really want to start it off. I mean, unless you just, you know, you're like Rick and you have this real aptitude for, uh, just complete total misery, maybe. But, uh, after breakfast, uh, Rose finds uncle Maddie dead asleep on the porch I mean literally uh there's a few seconds that you are actually gonna think that he passed into the spirit world I mean this dude is a statue Baba. uh I can't stress it enough you know it it's you, you kind of half expect her to put a mirror under his nose or check check his pulse or something but uh rose hesitantly kind of reaches out to touch his face i don't even think that she's sure that he's alive and chris tells her you know don't don't disturb him he's sleeping and uh then you kind of have this sigh of relief like oh like i thought he was dead for a second uh and the two of them kind of start playing hide and seek instead Again, there's this really, again, touching moment, uh, you know, with with Chris and uh, uh, with Rose that they have no problems. You know, Chris has no problems, even though he's much older. Uh, he has no problems being a kid and doing kid things with his little sister. But that all changes when uh, oldest cousin, Danny, who's played by Mario Ramirez, uh, asks Chris to join him in a pickup game of basketball. And Rose looks kind of surprised and even a little hurt by the sudden brush off. And she kind of watches her big brother walk off to join his new bro squad, leaving her behind. But uh, to his credit, Danny does ask if Rose plays ball at all. And Chris kind of shrugs it off and says, a little, but she's not very good. And, you know, that definitely rubs a lot of salt into the wound, uh, an already open wound. But back at the job site, now we're, we're at the job site, John has impressed the boss man, enough to earn a permanent spot with the roofing crew, but uh, not enough to earn much respect from Rick. Uh, like I said, he's, he's just really carries this, this uh, chip on his shoulder the entire film, uh, so it seems like things are at least starting off on the right path for John, if, if for anybody. But then we cut back to Rose, uh, finding a jingle dress laid out on her mom's bed um, in the house, And she gently kind of runs her hand over the metal cones. And, you know, when she does that, it just brings them to life with this really beautiful sound. And her mom, Elsie, uh, tells her that, uh, you know, one day we're going to make she's going to make her her own if she promises that she'll help. And, of course, that that brings a huge smile to to Rose's face. And, you know, I was kind of hoping for a little more exposition here, you know, as to to who maybe the dress belonged to. Is it special? Why is it laid out? Like, um, you know, just the uh, this, uh, sentimental value of it or, or, or what what it is. But there's really nothing like that. It's just laid out there on the bed. And we can just assume that maybe she just unpacked it, that it belongs to her. But there's really no time for that. Because this is so quick. The scene lasts literally like no more than 30 seconds probably yeah, there's no time to explain anything like that To the audience about the dress Because we got a quickly jump cut to Chris uh, And he's being manhandled on the court By Danny and all of his, his white grown-up friends at the park
0: you like me to make you a dress I'll make you one in time from the power if you promise to help me
1: so yeah there's like no time to dwell on I mean this scene because we got to get to Chris on the basketball court which again uh, the, the film is titled the jingle dress I really thought they would really kind of go more into detail about about it but that comes a little much, a little bit later in the film, I guess. Um, but anyway, we're on the basketball court at this point. It's like a real quick cut, and you can tell that Chris is usually the one doing all the serving on the court as he sort of picks himself up off the asphalt. And I'm not sure why the cutaway to the scene, why 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 we cut away to it, because it really bears nothing to further the plot or story. I mean, at first you're, you're kind of thinking that maybe it's going to set up some kind of conflict between Chris and Danny that's going to pay off or, or maybe present some kind of inner struggle or something obstacle or some kind of obstacle that Chris is, is dealing with or, but something, you know, but there's, there's no meat to it. It's literally 15 seconds of boys playing basketball and then boom, there's another quick cut to a bar. And then inside this bar is, uh, there's this bartender and he's melting faces with some real dirty, stinky one man blues, and uh as rick and john enter uh and belly up rick orders two beers to which you know john politely declines uh preferring diet pop instead and i think it'd have been a nice touch here and really fit rick's character if he'd ordered two beers and then kind of turned to john and asked him if he wanted anything hey but uh after john refuses the alcohol i mean rick looks at him as if he's some kind of you know this this raging you know uh girly man for for not wanting to drink his beer but he's he's definitely the kind of guy that you know who bases your manliness and uh, gusto on the amount of pap's blue ribbon you can pound uh but John you know politely explains to to him that he quit that nonsense years back. And, uh, you know that Rick is, is a, a patron of the bar because, uh, when they walk, I forgot to say when he walked in the door, like everybody greets Rick. So he's must be a regular. And, uh, anyway, and again, you think this is going to kind of play out a little bit more in the film, but, uh, uh, John they're they're kind of sitting at the bar, the two of them, and they're hoisting their respective pints and John's attention trains on this real mysterious shadowy figure uh, at the back of the bar. Hey, bro! Hey, guys. What'll it be?
2: A uh, couple of drafts. I'll stick a diet pop. Thank pop. Any kind? Oh, I don't do that anymore. Right. Better watch what you're looking at around here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some general from Vietnam or somewhere. Worked with the CIA. Must be Laosian. Mum. Whatever. All you need to know is he's the leader of the little mafia. There's a hell of a lot of them living here now.
1: So Rick warns him, as you just heard, to, to be careful who you're looking at in this town. The man that's caught John's eye is some kind of general from Vietnam, and Rick kind of paints this really vague word picture that he's this one bad hombre who used to work for the CIA, and he's this leader of some local mafia. I, I literally, I literally laughed out loud because when they cut away to it, I uh, half expected uh, Steven Seagal, you know, swilling Lone Stars in the shadows. But instead, you get like this crypt creep, 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 creep keeper in a black beret and wraparound shades. Uh, I mean, it's one of the greatest visuals in the entire movie. Uh, it's it's hilarious, and uh, John, you know, out of nowhere, just looking at this guy, just immediately assumes that he's Laotian or, or Hmong or Asian. And I'm not at all trying to sound, you know, uh, like a redneck here when I say this, but. You know, giving the dude is wearing these blacked out sunglasses. I mean, it's the size of a freaking windshield on his face. Uh, you know, how could you possibly tell, uh, you know, what nationality this guy is? Uh, anywho, uh, Rick, you know, goes out of his way or he goes on to say that there's a lot of mafia guys living here, which again, like I just sort of belly laugh because I was like, wait, what? Like, what did he say? Did he say mafia? And, uh, you know, like, what's awesome, even, even better is, is, you know, John kind of gives Rick the this, this same sort of holy holani uh, look on his, you know, that I had on my face when he says this. It's, it's hilarious. So, it's like, what kind of movie is this? You know, like, uh, where is this taking place? Uh, we, like, we have a possible Laotian mafia underboss, you know, casually drinking beers in a, in a dive bar. He's like an Indian Godfather or something, right there. Uh, you know, he's going to wake up one of these days and find a squirrel head in his bed or something. It's 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 awesome. But anyway, uh, John kind of starts bringing up Uncle Norton and uh, about how they had found him dead last summer under this bridge, and nobody you know seems to know anything about it. Rick really seems oblivious, but he says that he had heard a rumor, uh, you know, uh, around town. And, uh, he said something along the lines that, uh, Norton and general Skeletor, the guy that we were just introduced to, uh, in the, in the corner there in the pool hall, uh, had some curt words, uh, but nothing was in stone. Uh, and then the two are interrupted by this really portly FBI guy, uh, FBI meaning full blood Indian. You see what he did there? <laughs> and you thought this, you really thought this movie was about to come off the rails, didn't you? For a second but uh, he really kind of he sternly inquires as to who exactly John is
2: I heard the general and Uncle Norton tangle it up really hey you I think you are oh my god I sure hope so John Red Elk don't you know the best Damn, scouting the eighth recon. Buff? Ain't damn right? <laughs> damn, I thought you got shot and wounded knee or something. You mean here? Jeez. Oh. <laughs> or here? <laughs> I remember when you got that one. <laughs> ah, Ho Chi Minh bastard. Yeah, it's good to see you. <laughs> Give me a drink or something. Hey. Get our friend a
0: drink.
1: What you drinking? Uh, Sarsaparilla. Shit. <laughs> 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 Sarsaparilla. Oh man, that that I love that so much. That's awesome. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know when when you you get the sense that this guy when he, when he first approaches Rick and Red Elk uh, that he's really he might be roughing them up or that maybe he's working for the general. And, uh, you know, John kind of eyeing this guy up and down before suddenly realizing that it's, that it's uncle Norton's old war buddy buff. And he's played by the always entertaining, always amazing Steve Rivas, no matter what Rivas is in, whether he's, you know, from Geronimo to Malcolm in the middle to the longest yard, you know, he'll always be Shep Proudfoot, uh, from Fargo whipping a naked Steve, Steve Buscemi with his belt. And, uh, it's just he just has such a, a way uh, that he speaks and the way that he carries himself that it's just I absolutely love, love that guy. God bless him. But uh, anyway, it, it turns out Buff and John also uh, served in the war together. And, uh, you know, which kind of begs the question of how John didn't immediately recognize him. You know, it's kind of beyond me. But Buff was also mixed up, like like you heard in the clip uh, heard in the clip that he was mixed up in wounded knee, and and he you know he's proudly showing off these two bullet wounds he received, and uh, the three the three men uh, catch up, play catch up over drafts and diet pops and sarsaparillas. <laughs> Meanwhile, at home, there's the scene with Janet and Elsie, and they're sort of sitting at the dining room table and they're discussing setting up a booth of beadwork at a craft fair that's coming up, and you know Elsie being kind of displaced uh, from her home she has no real problem with the situation the way it's starting out but what she really wants is to become more of like a financial uh, contributor uh, and she wants a real job she's just not content with just being John's cheerleader but before long uh, once again the moment is broken and you'll get this a lot in the movie where there's these scenes that you think are really going to you know, become of more importance, you know, later. But they're just sort of stopped, uh, you know, mid-dialogue because the boys are home and they're kind of come stumbling in from the bar and they're all excited to introduce the family, to old Joe Buff. And it turns out Buff uh, has conveniently, uh, because the script says so, served tours in Vietnam with Uncle Norton. He served in Kuwait with John Red Elk. And he apparently served at Wounded Knee with Dennis Banks. So the dude is a, a major, major Tustinucky. Uh, tustinucky. And once old oh, Rick, though, he kind of follows behind him. And he comes literally, literally stumbling in. And Janet, who's uh, uh, sitting there with Elsie, she really kind of starts, you know, busting his chops about his drinking and she wants to know, you know, how many he's had and, you know, how many times they've discussed this and, and so on and so forth. And they kind of, you know, exit the scene and we're left there with the uncomfortable uh, shot of uh, Elsie and, and John and Buff. And in the background uh, off camera, you can hear uh, Janet and Brick kind of hollering at one another You know, about drinking and driving, and you know, how many times they've had discussions about this, and uh, so on and so forth. So, you will feel that this is again going to be a catalyst or a major plot point in the story, but there's zero payoff for it, and it just sort of goes nowhere. But we'll get there though. So, uh, yeah.
0: Come on, come on,
2: come on. Hey, Elsie. It's Joe Buff. Joe Buffalo from Dead Storm. Hey.
0: I thought you were in Vietnam with Uncle Norton.
2: I've been in every war there ever was.
0: (laughs) How many have you had?
2: Ain't nothing to do with you. Are you hungry? Yeah, starving. Buff.
0: Yeah, okay, I'll see you. you
2: drive my car drunk. Uh, I'm not drunk. The last time.
0: Jeez, oh, already said all right.
1: Next up, we have probably uh one of the most bizarre uh unintentionally hilarious uh out of place scene in the entire film and uh you, you're going to hear the clip here in just a minute. I'll play it in its entirety because it's just, it's insane uh, how how what 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 goes on in this. But uh, the next morning, we have Rose and Chris, and they enter this like Asian convenience store that's uh, just down the street, and there they find a clerk behind the counter, and he's having a discussion uh, with an Indian man um, about you know never. Having full-time protection in town And he's kind of, you know, going on and on A little bit about that And uh, as the kids are checking out This other guy uh, enters the shop And he's kind of, you know, dressed like a gangster He's got like the bandana on And he's got like the, you know not Like a leather starter jacket looking kind of thing yeah, He's just kind of in the background just a little bit He just literally just pops his head in uh, Apparently looking maybe for some shakedown money or something uh, the clerk defiantly tells uh, the gentleman that entered and then the gentleman that's standing there uh, to pass word to the general that he will be getting nothing from him today. And uh, We obviously know uh, what kind of operation the general runs in the town. Um, so again, this is a, a really odd scene because it doesn't really tie anything together. It, the general's not in it. It's just like his goons. It's It's just kind of weird in the performance of the clerk which you'll hear um he's played by ethan jong uh it's really wooden it's it's kind of funny (laughs) you know unintentionally i mean he's trying his hardest uh you know but it just this is one of those scenes i feel that really should have either been edited down or just cut completely out of the film i mean even going so far as is you know when rose and chris go to check out he just says oh you can have these oranges uh you know because we want to keep you're a first time customer you can just have this and we want to keep your business um i mean there's other ways of doing that he could have just been super friendly and still kept their business again i don't really know it's just super bizarre um how it plays out so here's the clip man tell me what you think
0: you cannot tell yourself and this neighborhood 100% of the time so at some point you must relax and give in to your fate so remember you got to relax or you go crazy so where you come from we're from a reservation up north oh you got family here so what's your name rose yeah yeah, this is free because you are first-time customers. You know, uh, we want to keep your business.
1: Thank
0: you. Oh, you're welcome. You tell the general I got nothing for him today.
1: So yeah, there you go. So if you couldn't tell, there were uh, there's an Indian guy with like braids and a top hat uh, and sunglasses uh, that he's talking to. Uh, when he says the line, you know, "Oh, you must have family here," uh, the uh, uh, the native guy that's kind of standing there, and he doesn't say a word, and he, nobody says a word in here, uh, other than the clerk and Rose and Chris. Uh, but anyway, the Indian guy kind of does like the the black power fist, you know, and kind of smiles and nods his head, and so I just kind of thought that was a very ambiguous statement uh, by the by the clerk there, just assuming that that you know that that guy was in Rose and Chris are related or at least family in some, some ways. But again, it was just sort of weird. Cause like I said, there's no words spoken. We don't really know who these guys are that he's talking to. There's no, you know, line that, you know, what they're even doing there. We're just assuming, you know, by the way he's acting, um, is he trying to keep the peace? were, were they, you know, roughing him up before the kids got there? It's just, like I said, it's just sort of out of place, but back at the house, uh, we have Uncle Matty and Rose, and um, they 're enjoying the orange that the guy had just given them out on the front porch and Rose explains through narration you know how much she loves Uncle Matty because uh, he lets her be with him as long as she wants, and he will never ditch her to go play res ball with the white kids so instead, she says that you know they 're going to take a walk to the park later, and she says that Uncle Matty has this uncanny ability. To sit long for long extensions of time without moving or blinking, and she loves how s- smart he is, and he's definitely demonstrated the skill of corpsing in the earlier scene, so we know that statement to definitely be true. Meanwhile, uh, John Red Elk, uh, he's at the local sheriff station, and he's checking out Uncle Norton's police report, and there's not—he doesn't really find a whole lot of information. Uh, other than uh, the body was found out by the old hydroelectric plant near the falls, but the officer he he tells John that he needs to speak with the medical examiner if he wants any real answers, so John begins the scavenger hunt by heading to the county hospital later the night later in that night the in one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie, uh, the family is gathered around this old television set and they're watching this old. Hollywood, uh, stereotypical whitewash Indian movie, uh, and the page literally torn from my youth, uh, Rose fixes her eyes are, you know, fixed to the soft bluey, uh, blue glowing tube. Um, she kind of, kind of casually turns to Elsie and she says, mom, I wish we were real Indians and, uh, you know, visually frustrated, uh, yet slightly amused by the statement. Mom tells Rose, you know, honey, we are real Indians (laughs) And uh, she makes a solemn vow right then and there that as soon as they head back north, that they're going to get Rose, her Indian name. And uh, I feel the scene is is a perfectly written commentary on how and what children can sometimes identify with when searching for cultural identity. You know, it's what we see on television. We sort of believe that to be a fact. And I can honestly say that I fell victim to it as well. And that was something that I discussed in the very first podcast, All My Relations, so go check that out. Uh it's our job, I feel, you know, as parents and as 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 you know, as we grow older as elders, uh to teach our children about tribal ways. And um, you know, on a side note, I'd really kind of like to know what film or movie they were watching because it totally looks podcast worthy. But judging by kind of what I saw uh on the screen, it probably looked like some kind of Geronimo slash Apache movie. Um you can definitely tell that the lead character was, was not native. Uh maybe Charles Bronson perhaps or 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 Heston maybe, who knows? One of the Charles. But uh anyway, we'll have to check that out. So if anybody knows what movie they're watching, let me know. I would love to 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 review that film. So, as the movie plays uh, outside, we begin hearing screams of people uh like saying like "No, no, no, like stop it uh The family you know stops the movie and they rush out to investigate and they find the old couple, the old biracial couple from the porch, um, like when the scene when uh, the family pulls up to Rick and Janet's house, and again keep in mind this is the second time that we see them. So the first time they're just kind of creepily waving and smiling and watching the family unload. And the second time we see them, uh, the, the, the black woman is standing over the old man and it looks like he's maybe passed out. I don't really know. Um, and she tells him, you know, you need to learn some, ma- some manners. We again have no idea what happened. <laughs> we don't know why he's laid out. Is he drunk? Is, was he getting a little fresh, uh, in and, who the heck even are these people and the scene awkwardly ends. So again, we're treated to this really tender uh, moment uh, in the film, just immediately cut to a scene that really has nothing to do with with what's going on. And, And again, that's kind of the frustrating part about the movie. But the next day, uncle Maddie and Rose are at the park and Maddie gives her a bear tooth and a bear fingernail to look at. He just, for some reason has these things in his pocket and Rose pulls the snake skin that she was carrying in the opening scene from her pocket. And uh, Maddie says, Ah, oh, you know, you have your own magic. And so the two wander off to kind of look for other things to add to the collection. Soon, uh, they, they Rose finds a feather, and Maddie tells her that for some reason, like, we have to keep these items together. Again, why? We're, we're never told, it's never really explained. We don't know if these items are old that Maddie has or or what kind of, you know, spiritual connection there is to anything. We just were told that she must always keep these items together. And the other kind of weird thing about the scene is there's this little white girl and her mom, and they're kind of observing like kind of what's going on. And she little girl approaches the, the duo and she asks them, like, what are you looking for? And Uncle Matty says, um, well, no, when we find it. So, Mado, for those cryptic words, because <laughs> we don't know what they're looking for. They don't know what they're looking for. The little girl doesn't know what they're looking for. They're just looking for something, and we don't really know what. When they finally do find something, and, we again, we have never really shown uh, what it is that they found, all three, the, the Rose and Maddie and uh, the little girl they really kind of cringe worthily, like jump up and down in the chat and hooray, hooray. And, you know, I've always had a a huge issue um, with depicting elderly people that behave as children. Uh, It really, to me, I feel it strips them of any type of dignity that they have. It makes them look, you know, not young at heart, um, but more like a senile uh, to me. And the best, Example that I can probably cite here, um, you know, not to get off on a tangent, but if you know me, you know that I'm a huge fan of the old Twilight Zone uh, television show that Rod Serling hosted. Uh, there's an episode, I think it's episode or excuse me, season three, uh, but it's called kick the can. And the episode focuses on um, this retirement home. And there's this old man there that kind of feels that he's discovered the fountain of youth by playing the games of yesterday, yester years when he was a kid. And uh, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. When you see this old man behave as a child, uh, you know, there's one thing to to have your your characters behave, your older characters behave, you know, youthfully, but not so youthfully that they become, you know, mentally like children. Uh, Again, it's just it's kind of a cringeworthy little spot there. But, uh, anyway, that night we get John and Elsie and they're lying in bed together and they're listening to police sirens whirl by and Rose again, through some more narration. She tells us that, that mom is starting to become afraid for her kids and she just wants to go back home because she fiercely misses her family. Uh, and being the man that he is, John tells her, you know, you, we just got to suck it up. You know, I, I, know, I know we're struggling here. I know you're struggling, but we'll adjust over time. And Elsie kind of explains that she really doesn't want that that's that's not what she's hoping for because she's starting to you know f- explain to John that she feels like she's kind of losing touch with her old life her old ways and it's uh it's a tender moment that I think that a lot of natives struggle with you know how to balance having your feet having your feet in both um, both worlds the native world and and the white world um, so uh from there we get maybe a, a black and white flashback/dream sequence and we i guess it's Uncle Norton um he's kind of sprawled out this guy's kind of sprawled out uh, on a bridge and he's dressed like a homeless man and he's just passed like smooth out and the camera which is a drone um it kind of drones over the bridge to the park to the house over the trees and then the next thing is like John is like you know he's like startled he, he wakes up and he's startled and then the next day, uh, we find John, um, and Rick hard at work roofing the house and absolutely out of nowhere, uh, that's not nothing, you know, provoked or, or anything. Rick just kind of, uh, uh, callously asked John and there's a third man on here and his name is never spoken, uh, not directly to him i think it's one of those things that he says later on in the film um but his name is marvin i had to actually look that up uh, on internet movie database to find out who this character is because like i said in the scene in the subsequent scenes they never once speak they speak to him and he has speaking lines but his name is never mentioned so we don't know who he is and even when Rick says it, the only reason I knew that it was Marvin was because I looked it up to begin with. So there's another scene coming up where, you know, uh probably like maybe twenty, thirty minutes later where Rick does say the word Marvin. But at this point, we don't know who he is, we don't know what his name is, but he's they're on the roof and they're they're they're, you know, shingling this house. And again, uh Rick just for out of nowhere just says, Hey, y'all gonna get any of that casino money? And there was unequivocally nothing, nothing to provoke a question there. They weren't talking. They weren't discussing anything, uh, nothing, uh, you know, Rick just spouts it out. So John kind of politely asks. he's like, Hey man, you need to get off the rest stuff. And Rick then goes on to explain how sick and tired he is of res guys. Um, and it's such a strange conversation seeing, like I said, how there's nothing that really led up to it. Nothing happened to make Rick angry, you know, especially towards John. He's not nothing but be kind to, to Rick. Um, he just kind of all of a sudden is angry. And uh, John goes to tell Rick, you know, kind of in a disconnected way that it has nothing to do with the res and it has everything to do with the land uh, and what it means to the people. And not even I'm sure at this point what John's referring to or what, what he's talking about, because, uh, you know, Rick continues this tirade by poking fun of their diet of rabbits and muskrats and uh you know eating muskrats brings this wave of nostalgia over marvin and he sort of you know mimically smells the air and he talks of good eating and john's you know talking about dreams of of days of life back on the res and you know uh you know cutting rice and picking berries and bagging birds and and uh, he tells Rick, you know, I think you've just spent way too much time on this roof because your head's in the clouds. And it's time to get back on the ground and become one with nature. And again, there's nothing really that's and it's, he just sort of has this chip on his shoulder the entire movie uh, towards towards John. And uh, it's just kind of odd because it's never really explored. But back on the basketball court, we're we're back there again. We see Rose, uh, and she's in this tree, um, kind of very similar to the opening shot of the film, and she's spying on uh, uh, Chris, who's playing you know basketball. And below, uh, Uncle Maddie kind of strolls by, and through narration, uh, she Rose says, uh, "Uncle Maddie wants to know why she's always climbing trees," and uh, you know Rose says that she loves trees because it brings her closer to the sky and that she can see everything from its vantage point. Uh, cut to back at the house. Elsie is working on sewing up Rose's jingle dress and Rose asks her to tell the story of the jingle dress. So I guess this would be uh, just as good a place as any to get into that and, and talk about what the origins of the jingle dress are. But before we get to that, I'm gonna play the little clip for you, and then we'll talk about uh, what the jingle dress means.
0: Mommy. Mm hmm. Tell me that story again. Well, you remember, there was a very wise and powerful medicine man. Yeah. One day, his granddaughter became very sick. And that night, he had a dream. That's right, the medicine man's spirit guide came to him in a sleep and he told him to make the jingle dress for her and to have her dance in it. Was she really sick? Yes, she was so sick that she couldn't dance by herself. The people had to pick her up and carry her around in the dress soon she was dancing by herself and the dress made her better that's right it's a healing dress and when we sew the little jingles on your dress they'll make a beautiful sound like it's raining and the rain will make everyone better that's right
1: All right, there's this fantastic book that's called uh, Heartbeat of the People, and it was written by Tara Brown, and that's, it's a book that's all about uh, many different styles of dance and regalia, and on page 53, she goes into detail, great detail, about the jingle dress and the jingle dance. The jingle dress is a First Nations and Native American woman's regalia and dance, Uh, And I'm reading from the book here. Uh, One of the most profound elements of the jingle dress uh, of jingle dress dancing is its spiritual power, which originates as an energy generated from the sound of the metal cones that sing out to the spirits when the dancers lift their feet in time with the drum. The very act of dancing in this dress constitutes a prayer for healing during the dance. It is not uncommon for spectators and other drummers and dancers to offer the gifts of tobacco uh, and request that she pray for sick family members as she dances. There is very little fanfare and no public announcement when the jingle dance is performed. It's just usually acknowledged with a whisper or a nod and, or just a quiet circulations of word passed from dancer to dancer. And again, that is from the book uh, Heartbeat of the People. And if you haven't checked out that book, uh, please do yourself a favor. It is a, a beautiful, uh, well-written book. Uh, the Jingle Dress dance, actually, it first appeared around World War I. Uh, special healing songs are often associated with the Jingle Dress, and together with the dance, it possesses a strong therapeutic value. Uh, the Jingle Dress is a frequent theme in a contemporary storytelling among the Ojibwas, and there's one in particular uh, that addresses its origin. The setting for the story is in north-central Minnesota, uh, but other versions sometimes you'll hear of Whitefish Bay, And uh, it's a simple narrative, um, actually, and I wrote it down just so that I could make sure that I would get it absolutely right. Um, But basically, you have the story of a young girl, um, as you heard in the clip, that was sick, and she gave no signs of recovering. Uh, It appeared that death was evident, and her father had a vision. And in that vision, he was shown how to make the dress and how to perform a dance so he set about making the dress and when he finished he put it on his daughter and he then instructed her to perform the dance in his vision and in spite of her horrible illness she somehow mustered the strength to dance and as she danced her health was revived until she was miraculously uh, cured Um, afterward the same girl sought out three other girls and directed them each to make a dress in one of the four sacred colors, um, sometimes it's referred to maybe as a medicine wheel, uh, the red, yellow, white, uh, black sometimes, or blue in this instance. And the dress was to have uh, four rows of jingles rolled from snuff cans. And that was one of the things that I remember growing up. Um, our, our family is has a couple of smoke shops here in uh, Tulsa and Broken Arrow. And uh, I remember as a kid, well, maybe not as a kid, but as a high schooler, I was always having my friends collect as many snuff cans um, as we possibly could get. And at one point, I mean, I had trash bags full of like old Copenhagen cans and old uh, skull cans um, because you could turn those lids in, the little metal lids into the uh, smoke shop. And they would uh, give you like for like every four lids you uh, brought in, you got like a quarter off. And so we were able to, you know, not only provide the the cones for the dresses, but also get a little bit of money off the uh, the old snuff there but anyway uh, the girl's name um, in this story her name is Maggie White, and she and her three friends became what is called the nucleus of the jingle dress dance society and if you're interested in learning more about that society's uh, uh, you know check out that book because it talks a lot about the values and the concept of women 's role in pre-reservation time. Uh, but the jingle dress holds, like we said, a spiritual power for the Ojibwa people for its association with healing. And since world war one, the tradition began to spread through the Ojibwa country and soon it reached the Dakota neighbors. And in this tradition, the power of the dress uh, to heal is also central, but in a different variant of the story, um, there's added the elements of the girl's relationship with her grandfather who was a medicine man. And this is the story that gives the cones a sound that's called uh, quote, like our sister, the tree in uh, quote. So recontextualizing that story, uh, it kind of fits better with a Lakota framework. And um, there's this uh, elder named Norma uh, Redden of Pine Ridge. And she tells this version the the Lakota Dakota version of the story, it says the uh, women's jingle dress originated from the Chippewa tribe that was right after World War one this veteran um, he was an Indian he came back from war and right away he got very sick uh, real sick and he was close to his granddaughter and they had this real tight bond between them and when he got real sick like that the the medicine man uh, excuse me when he got real sick like that, the uh, granddaughter was scared and she wanted her because she wanted her grandpa to live obviously. So the little girl went to the medicine man and they went to a ceremony and she said that, uh, my grandpa is real sick and I hurt inside because he's going to be gone. And I want to know that, um, I can, what I can do to make him stay here longer, to be around me longer. So the medicine man's uh, looked at the little girl and he said, you know, you are his life. His love for you is, uh, a real, is real strong and, um, the greatest happiness that he has in life is when he watches you dance. So he said, what you need to do is make a dress and on that dress, you need to put the tins, so that they'll jingle when you dance and they will sway back and forth and jingle. And when you do that, uh, it'll sound like the leaves on your sister tree and that will calm him and that will heal him. And when he, he sees you dance um, after that, he'll, he'll be Okay. So she put on a powwow. She made the dress, and then she went out and danced. But her dance had to be graceful, not fast and not slow. And uh, that's basically how the jingle dress came in, and why the it's a graceful and sway swaying dance. And that that story was was uh, recorded uh, on August August fifteenth, nineteen eighty nine. So, during the half century following Maggie White's first rendition. The jingle dress dance was limited to the confines mainly of the Ojibwe country, and it was rarely seen other than at powwows in those areas. Uh, Because of the myriad of different origin stories, there seems to be a couple of different footwork styles. One is called the straight or sidestep, and the other one is round, or more like a shuffle style. The northern traditional style has a sidestep style, but the tempo and the beat pattern of the music for the jingle round dance is very unique and unrelated to any other genre of powwow songs. Most drums can sing traditional or straight songs to accompany the dance. But if you really want to hear the most energized version of the song, uh, check out the song that I played at the, to open this podcast because it is, uh, was recorded by the whitefish Bay singers and that drum, those singers and that drum circle is, uh, descendants of Maggie white. So that is to me the most, probably the most traditional version of that, uh, of that song. But, uh, back at the, uh, medical examiner's office, um, we're kind of back to the movie now. That's a little bit about the, 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 uh, jingle dance or the jingle dress. Sorry about that to, that was not a very good segue, but I'm working on it. So back at, with the movie, uh, at the medical examiner's office, John learns uncle Norton was found, um, about sunrise with a large gash on his head. The autopsy also detected that he had, uh, an extreme amount of alcohol in his system, so the, uh, synopsis, uh, or the hypothesis, uh, is that the doctors think that uncle Norton was walking along the bridge. He was drunk. He passed out. He fell. He hit his head and he died as a result of, uh, hypothermia and exposure, but John, he wants his uncle's stuff. So the next phase of the scavenger hunt leads him to the funeral home, but it's not before they make a, lo- a stop at the local bingo all hall though, to dab a few cards and uh, this is a really neat scene because it really brought back a lot of – flooded my brain with a lot of memories because I remember being absolutely mesmerized when I was a kid at the speed at which my grandma, Okima – would daub those cards. I mean, I am not even uh, kidding you when I say she would have like 10 cards of her own. And she's just like, I mean, pop, 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 pop. And, uh, then she's playing everybody else's card. Like missed one, missed one, missed one. And, uh, it was just amazing to watch her. And it was insane how she was able to keep up not only with all of the cards and the people around her, their cards, uh, but also the callers. because back in the day, uh, at the river, you know, back was this Creek nation bingo before it was the rivers, uh, river wind, Uh it was i mean they were they was crazy they were they would call the numbers so fast and I, I remember the smells i remember the laughing in there um the popcorn that they that we would eat while we were there uh man those those were the days and grandmas grandmas are everything they're they're everything all right at the funeral home uh john uh literally crashes a funeral in progress hoping for some answers from the director uh about his uncle norton Uh, The funeral director kind of takes John back into his office there and just kind of has this odd conversation about the best part of his job is fixing up corpses to make them presentable for families. And he vowed that when he was in Nam and the way this script is written, it seems like everybody in this town is made up of war vets uh, that he was that when he was in Nam, that he decided right then and there that he was going to go into undertaking if he made it out alive. Because he was tired of seeing uh, men come home from war looking undignified, and this particular funeral director also um, happened to have served in Nam with Uncle Norton, so uh, pulling out the notes on him, uh, it says that uh, he tells John that he he froze to death, but he he's kind of suspicious of that, and uh, the scene just kind of ends there. Uh, on his way home, John is sort of walking along um, the railroad tracks and he finds Buff. And Buff is sitting on this bridge and he's kind of lamenting over the leaving the res. Uh, and, you know, he talks about, you know, the hardest thing about, about leaving was, you know, not knowing what happened to everybody he left behind. He says, you know, something like, uh, you know, there could be people that are sick or died and I don't know. And so he's just really kind of weighing on his heart there, uh, the loved ones that he left behind. And, uh, you know, John doesn't say a word. He's just listening, which is exactly what he should be doing. And Buff tells John, you know, the year that he was in Vietnam, that he never wrote home. And he he wanted to keep those two worlds separate, that it was too painful for him. And again, we get another reference to the conundrum of existing in two distinct uh, worlds, uh, whether it is, uh, you know, home or, or a foreign country, whether it's Native American and white, you, you get that uh, the juxtaposition of, of the, you know, existing or living in two different lives. Uh, John quietly pulls out a medicine bag and that we assume that although we never really saw that uh, was given to him by the funeral director um, and that, that belonged to Uncle Norton. And, you know, I really respect this scene because there's not a lot of dialogue other than what uh, Buff talks about. Um, and there's no dialogue about what the medicine bag is. It it's just is. And there's no ex- explanation of what it is, what you're supposed to do with it, the importance of it. Um, John just kind of grips it tight in his hand. He holds it close to his face. And he just kind of takes a deep breath. He inhales, you know, the, the, the fragrance uh, or the, you know, whatever's inside of it. So it's a really, really keen scene that, uh, you know, I I respect a lot. Uh, John decides that uh, he wants to help Buff out um, with his struggle. So in the next scene, they decided that uh, they're going to have a sweat lodge. They're going to go have a sweat. And on the ride out, Buff, you know, tells John about this white woman who used to look after Norton. And um, that he might want to go talk to her about the goings on. Which kind of begs the question of why he didn't say this earlier you know in the movie like if he knew what john was there to do you know you think that that would have been a a key piece of uh you know evidence or a key piece of uh, the story that uh he would tell john about but anyway the men they arrive at the sweat lodge and and they enter they enter the lodge um they go in the uh counterclockwise uh direction or the clockwise direction and uh they begin bringing in the rocks uh using antlers, and again, this scene is pretty spot on with uh, all, uh the sweats that i 've been to it's it's pretty accurately depicted here and I was kind of surprised by that actually um, and I also like the fact that um, old apple rick who i 'm actually shocked even came or wasn't even invited to, to that for for that but uh, he 's there and um, even though he 's clearly uncomfortable. Uh, but Buff, you know the fires are lit, and Buff kind of explains what the heat represents, and that you know that they're here to listen to the past, and and you know just watching this scene play out. I, I was ready to call up the Sons of Muskogee, and I think it's time that we get a sweat going because um, I've been missing missing my friends and, and missing that missing that good time.
2: Hello, grandfather. You must be thirsty. And another rock. Good one. This is Mother Earth. She will take anything we give to her. She will even take our past. She will take it from us and she will make us new.
1: The next day, uh, John arrives at this white lady's house. Um, outrageously, uh, she is, uh, exactly as she says she is, and she's not a war vet actually. Uh, but she is your typical, like one 200th great, great group Cherokee princess, grandmother having uh, dressed to the nines, uh, you know, fringe jacket, you know, house made up every inch of dream catchers and Kachina dolls. And, you know, just, <laughs> uh, anyway, she leads John, this woman leads John to the dining room, to show him a picture that has been painted by his uncle and John uh, seems to have no idea that Norton painted, uh, let alone that he was actually a rock star at it in the painting. uh, The painting depicts Norton himself. He's uh, like waist deep in water and he has this anguished yet kind of, you know, peaceful look on his face and it's done in sepia tones with, uh, with oil on canvas and Sally, um, as we've come to know, the person that uh, Buff was talking about on the way to the sweat, uh, she explains that the, the, the figure is Norton in the painting, and his eyes are closed, and he's trying to imagine how the world will change, and he's thinking about how best to prepare for it. Uh, so that keeping the old ways alive but still you know trying to survive and adapt – and again, there's that theme of, of duality of, you know, living in a white, white society and, and you know, but keeping hold of your ways, which is, you know, at, at the heart of the, what the movie is all about. And, um, but she goes on to explain that the painting was done for this old crusty New York art dealer, uh, named, uh, Jaeger. And that once this shifty old Jaeger got his beady little eyes on the glorious work of Norton, uh, that he had given him a huge advance, and he prompted him to pump out as many paintings as possible uh, for a show that's coming up. But Norton uh, was not going to be anybody's shill. So he's kind of painting at his usual speed, but he's unable to meet the demand uh, of displeasing Jaeger. And Jaeger uh, kept putting the squeeze on until Norton just sort of you know, fed up. He, he walks away from all of it. And she tells John um, that despite what the police report says, um, that Norton had not had a drop of alcohol in 18 years. Uh, and this is the revelation that really gets John's uh, gears grinding. Uh, back at the house, the women um, are chatting it up uh, about Pennzoil and men. And again, it's one of those scenes that's just out of place because two of the characters we've never even met uh, and one of them is possibly not quite sure the neighbor lady the 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 black lady from next door, who we last saw uh, was punching out or pushed down or shot who knows uh, you know in this in, in the in the dining room, so it really kind of makes the scene kind of confusing, but suddenly there's this loud crash outside, and the hoaties scramble out to investigate. And we see Rick uh, drunkenly kind of stumbling out of Janet's car. And he's obviously wrecked the side of it. And John gets out on the passenger side, which, you know, again, begs the question as to first, where were they? And two, why did uh, John even let Rick drive in the first place? Um, But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Janet, you know, when she's seen the car, you know, with the the crushed in door, she explodes and she goes back into the house and she tosses all of Rick's. Worldly possessions out the second floor window, you know, in very, um, uh, typical fashion. Uh, and like most Indian men, Rick has quite the collection of plaid flannel shirts and work boots. And, uh, he's got the renaissance flat screen, you know, 16 inch TV. Uh, and then all of a sudden buff sort of appears out of nowhere and he kind of points and, and laugh at the situation. And I totally get, you know, the scene is supposed to be kind of played for comedy, uh, but the fact is, you know, I don't really find a lot of humor in, you know, driving impaired or, or you know, whatever, because we don't know what happened. Actually, I mean, for all we know, Rick, you know, he crashed the car. I mean, how did that happen? Did he, did he, you know, ram into a kid? Did he, you know, sideswipe a, a a cop? You know, like what's going on? But no, no matter, because here we are. We're laughing because, like I said, the 14-inch Emerson is smashed. I guess. But uh, the scene ends, um, we find Uncle Matty in his favorite place uh, on the porch, uh, not playing dead. He's got his eyes open this time, and he's kind of watching this symbolic thunderstorm brewing. And I I say figurative thunderstorm, you know, with – Rick or being kicked out, but there's actual a, another, like a physical, uh, thunderstorm that's brewing. And he kind of slowly gets up and he walks out in the yard and he's kind of allowing the rain, you know, to wash over him. Andy Dufresne style from Shawshank. He kind of holds his arms up and tilts his head back and you just kind of lets the water kind of rush over him. Kind of, you know, like that, that rebirth type scene. Um, and the scene cuts then next to the, to the next day, with uncle Matty dead and he's actually dead this time he's on the porch and Rose kind of finds the body and ends scene and it's very sudden it's bizarre there's no nothing leading up to it um, it just plays out and I hope you're okay with that because that's a wrap on uncle Matty he's never spoken of again there's no memorial there's no emotional struggle with the family Rose barely mentions him. There's no grief, just dead. He's dead, and, you know, we'll write the book on, on Maddie. Uh, so, unfortunate into Maddie, but uh, he, he did leave us with some uh, excellent uh, scenes in the film. Uh, in the undisclosed future, the family is now at a powwow, and at the dance, Elsie spies Uncle Hawk. And she wants him to perform Rose's name ceremony. And after a quick exchange of words and tobacco, uh, Hawk agrees. And he says that he'll be back up north to honor Uncle Norton um, because he was a pipe carrier, which, again, this news stuns John um, when he discovers this. And, you you know, you'd think as close as John and Uncle Norton were supposed to be, uh, you know, John really doesn't seem to know anything much about him. He doesn't know he paints. He doesn't know he's a pipe carrier. You know, it's just... You know, but anyway, the, the scene is, is great because it's, it's short, but there's so many awesome extras in the scene, and they're dancing. And there's so many vibrant and colorful, peop- colorful people. It's layered. It's rich. It's just a really, really wonderful scene. Next up, we see uh, John, and he's at the bridge that he saw in the dream flashback of Uncle Norton's death. And he's kind of feeling around the ground. I don't know if he's really looking for clues, but he's sort of, you know, smelling the air. And he's running his hand over the concrete. And he's kind of pacing back and forth over the spot. And then crossfade uh, to John and Elsie being awakened by uh, an aimlessly screaming, drunk Rick outside. And it's kind of a, a heartbreaking scene in a way. I mean, even though uh, you know Rick is really not one for us to a character that we feel sympathetic towards um just because of the way he he is but he's kind of you can tell he's hurting and that he's heartbroken over what he's lost um but they look out the window and and Rick starts chunking rocks at the house and at this point John and Elsie just kind of look at each other and they go oh wow and then they all just go back to sleep i mean nobody you know shoes him away nobody goes out to talk to him nobody goes out to comfort him to you know find out what's wrong to give him any kind of aid he's just standing out there just i mean moaning just you know, heartbroken and they're just like, uh, eh, wow. Good night. <laughs> so that's that scene. Uh, and then the next day, uh, John and Marvin, um, and again, who's been in most of these scenes yet really still to be named, uh, nameless Marvin. Um, but they're up on the roof and they're wondering where Rick is. And John mentions nothing about the night before. He doesn't even say, Oh, I don't know. He just, he doesn't say a word. He's, I wonder where Rick is. And you know, like, well, it wasn't, you know, no 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 word from John uh, on on where Rick has been. Uh, no time for that because next we see Chris, Danny, and this other new character, and they 're sitting around a campfire um, it 's another the new character is, is a young young boy and a uh, well, teenage boy, I guess and they 're kind of talking about mysterious caves in the area, and the the two boys uh, you know that are new, the new characters they get this idea to take them exploring and um the one of the boys he's he's wearing a wig and it's so atrocious that it makes adam beach and smoke signals look like wind in his hair uh (laughs) they kind of like i said kind of wander in and you know start talking for some reason about the sundance so it goes from you know exploring caves to the sundance and there's no uh real segue to that conversation and then a couple of quick hits on a crooked joint it's decided that hey they're all going to go exploring Uh, But again, cut to, to, you know, no time to explore that plot plot line, because we've got to get back to John and Marvin, because uh, John just got laid off and Marvin tells John they're going to have to head west to see what kind of jobs are available. And John says, sure, I'll go, but I've got business to take care of first. And that business would be him and Buff confronting a rather hostile secretary about the at the local art gallery about Mr. Yeager and Norton's paintings
0: Can I help you?
1: It's Mr. Yeager here.
0: He's in a meeting. May I tell him what this is about?
2: Norton Red Elk
0: Don't touch that.
2: Nice stuff. Yeah, must be worth a ton. It's Uncle Norton's. Oh,
0: man! Can I help you? Norton Reddock's nephew. Yeah. I just like to see the man he was doing business with before he died. Well, uh, it was a shame. He was a talented man.
2: You know what happened to
0: him? No, I certainly don't.
2: Someone killed him.
0: It's not what I heard. So you do know what happened to him? Just that he had some kind of accident. Do you own this? I do. Did you buy it? It was payment for expenses. What expenses? My time is expensive. What's it worth? It's selling for $40,000. $40,000.
2: Let's
1: go. Back at the house, uh, John then tells Elsie about him getting laid off and having to spend a few weeks away working. And Elsie, at this point, she's ready to hightail it and leave. She's like, I'm done. I'm fed up. I can't do this anymore. And John says they can't right now because he's getting so close to finding out what happened to Norton. Uh, And then later that night, we see a police car flying down the street, racing towards the convenience store. And, uh, something big is going down at Kong's grocery. Uh, and then gathered around the porch are Janet and Elsie and the neighbor lady we keep seeing, and they're kind of watching paramedics and they're storming in with the, the gurney and police are, you know, filing in. And apparently the, the neighbor, uh, lady, uh, nonchalantly just says something like I heard gunshots and then end scene and then cut to the boys. We're back in the cave and I don't know if this is all supposed to be happening on the same night. But they're, they're in the cave, and uh, they're armed with flashlights and astonished looks. And the five youths in a, enter the mouth of the cave, and, and the, the music takes this real ominous tone. And it gives the viewer a sense of tension and dread, and they're kind of belly crawling through these really super tight spaces. And then they kind of come out safely on the other side of this just, just huge gargantuan opening. But on the walls, they see ancient pictographs, and they're dating back 2,000 years and i was kind of hoping for a backstory or some cultural explanation um you know related to the area or the people there but there's nothing because the scene abruptly comes to a halt uh one of the kids says uh, we got to go uh and they go why why do we have to go and he's like because uh, the spirits say it's time and uh so without so much as, as a clarification you know or or a. Uh, you know, even a, a, a explanation. The the boys just all decide, okay, let's go, and they just walk off. And so, like I said, I was hoping there'd be uh, more to this, but like a lot of scenes uh, in the, especially in the last half, it just kind of sharply ends, and there's nothing ever mentioned of it again, um, you know, directly. Uh, as for John, uh, the hits keep on coming because uh, he's away from work, and he discovers the foreman at the new job that he's at. Uh, isn't going to give him his full wages and um, he explains to him that he's not a union man and a white boss isn't even going to pay him at all and you know uh john you know really bugs his eyes out and he grits his teeth and he's gloves slapping the desk and uh the foreman you know quickly makes haste with the check writing uh meanwhile another figurative and literal storm is brewing at the house. And Elsie discovers that Chris isn't at home uh, during the thunderstorm. And she's kind of lying awake, worried about her children. And for the moment, we kind of cut back to John. And he's taking any job he can at this point to provide for his family. He's breaking his back. He's picking blue blackberries and, you know, whatever, you know, just berries. And he's just doing field work at this point. And then back to the house, um, Elsie is finished with the jingle dress and she calls Rose in to try it on, and Rose is beaming from ear to ear as she holds it up against her, and she looks in the mirror. Uh, you know, this is the the moment that we've all been waiting for. Uh, it's it's the title of the movie, The Jingle Dress. Rose has been talking about it. All the characters have been talking about it. And um, this really tender moment, however, is is completely broken up and just comes to another screeching halt. By a squawking of a police siren and Elsie runs outside and uh, just in time to see Chris and he's handcuffed and he's being uh, forcefully pushed into the back of a police car. And again, it's such a strange scene because there's no explanation of what the heck is even going on. Because the last time we saw Chris, he's, like, in this cave. And the next time we see him, you know, he's being manhandled by the popo. And we have no idea what led up to the moment. Like, was he, you know, looking suspicious on the street corner? Uh, He's just, you know, all of a sudden under arrest. Um, Maybe it was because uh, he went where he wasn't supposed to go. Uh, Maybe that's what they were talking about, you know, uh, back in the cave. But uh, a lawyer, uh, we're at the, the courthouse now. And the lawyer... Uh, a lawyer steps in and he explains that the police think the boys, are you ready for this? Have something to do with the freaking murder, a murder, a murder, y'all a killing. Apparently the convenience store clerk that we saw um, awkwardly give, give them the kids oranges uh, was murdered and the boys might be involved. It's the craziest and most insane subplot ever reduced into a movie with only 12 minutes left. Um, and things are at this point are really, really looking rough for the red elk family, but back at home, um, I'm assuming Rose is by herself. Um, she has on the jingle dress and she slowly kind of starts rocking back and forth and the cones kind of start to sway a little bit. And then she kind of begins to lightly bounce and the dress slowly starts to come to life. And this scene is overlaid with passages of Elsie at the courthouse along with Janet. And they're talking about the state taking away her children and John busting his back in the fields and the lawyer doing law stuff. And the whole time Rose is back at home and she's dancing for the family and she's healing their pain. She's, Hearing their prayers, um, you know, and the two boys, um, you know, proclaim they're innocent to their mothers and Rose dances. And this is really, you know, there's a lot of great moments in this film. You know, I don't want to feel like I've spent the last two hours, uh, you know, undermining it or bashing it because it, it really is. It's, it's a, it's my favorite part. There's a lot of wonderful little keen moments. And this is it. And it's a wonderful payoff uh, to, to the film. Uh, Meanwhile, though, old Buff, he he shows back up at Uncle Norton's art show, just as Jaeger is shaking hands uh, with the final buyer, and with a swipe of a blade, Buff cuts the phone lines, and he proceeds to tell a story about wild horses in alfalfa fields uh, to Jaeger. So the the story goes uh, that horses get so greedy that they eat alfalfa until their stomachs swell, until they're close to bursting. And he said that uh, his father used to call him out to um, having to slice open the bellies of the horses to relieve the pressure and that doing so would save their lives. And so he correlates to Jaeger that people also get greedy and that it's his job to open them up and save their lives, too. And the only thing this scene is really missing is for Buff to take his belt off and uh, just whip the ever-living tar out of Jaeger, uh, a la Shep Proudfoot. Uh, but an uneasy Jaeger gives buff all of Norton's paintings right off the wall. And it's definitely, he's conjuring his inner Shep Proudfoot in this scene. Uh, the greatest part about it though, is, as, uh, as Jaeger hands, uh, buff the painting, he goes, Hey, I don't you need a, I want it gift wrapped. And so they, they take it and they gift wrap it for him on the way out the door. So it's awesome. It's just really, like I said, it's a really cool scene. Uh, one of Buff's finest or Steve Revis's finest moments. But now we're at the craft fair and Janet and Elsie are setting up the table to peddle their wares and Rose is wearing the jingle dress and she mills about the vendors' tables, lamenting on her life in the city um, through narration and how much she misses Uncle Matty. And then at the end of the day, uh, John, he shows up surprising the family. And what's kind of funny about this is there's not one word mentioned about Chris. Uh, You know, John and Elsie are kind of having this moment and, you know, he says, like, I'm done. I can't, you know, maybe it's time for us to go home. Um, he's just beat. And then Janet kind of walks up and she goes, good news. And John kind of confused, you know, kind of cocks his eyebrow and he's like, what's going on? and the two ladies just like hilariously dismiss it as oh nothing i mean it's like our son wasn't falsely accused of murdering another human being uh nothing like that he's just you know he's he's held in general pop for an undisclosed amount of time or anything uh john just kind of goes along with it and again during this moment my 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 belly uh swelled with laughter because she literally goes good news they found the the boys who did it uh the guys that did it and the boys are going to be released and that's it uh that's it for that that plot line and uh the film trucks towards its conclusion at rose uh at rose's naming ceremony and she's bestowed the name Skywoman because of her love of trees, fortitude, resilience, and patience and After the ceremony, john uh, excuse me buff leads John uh to this truck and he gives uh John uncle Norton's painting and he tells. Uh, John, the punk general in the black beret that we saw for five seconds at the bar at the very beginning of the movie. Remember him? Uh, who's never been seen or talked about again uh, until this point that uh, he's cheating people, uh, cheating them. How or why, or is never explained. Um, did he have anything to do with Jaeger? Did he have anything to do with the murder of the grocery store clerk? Uh, Chris being served his behindy on the uh, basketball court, spirits in the cave, the sudden death of Maddie, the blown tire at the beginning, John losing his job, Rick's disgust at res people, whatever it was, it seems that uncle Norton found out what the general is involved about, uh, involved in, and uh, Norton was killed uh, for his effort in trying to stop it. What it is, we have no idea, uh, but that's, that's the storyline. And we're never told who the general is, how he's involved in any of this, where he came from or how he's cheating the town, why or uncle Norton even got involved in the first place. And for all the police work he did, John really came up with absolutely nothing, uh, to, to, to figure out what happened to Norton. And he just seems fine with that. And, uh, kind of shrugged his shoulders and that's it. Uh, plot line finished. So the final scene in the movie, um, well, one of the final scenes in the movie, um, is, uh, sees the family packing up and they're heading back to the res and they wave goodbye to Janet and and, and Rick's there, um, obviously forgiven. The last time we saw him, he was, you know, uh, heartbroken, crying his eyes out outside the house, uh, begging to be let back in. But apparently, he's back and he's forgiven. We're not sure if he sought help, if he apologized, if he's in treatment. What's going on? But he's there and he's goofily waving goodbye to the family as they pull away. Uh, He never wants to apologize for anything that he said to John. There's no moment like, hey, man, I was wrong about you. Uh, He just waves, See ya," And that's it. (laughs) And that's the end of that that story. And there's an epilogue to the movie, and it shows uh, Rose, and she's kind of wading through the weeds back home on the res. And she sees a snake, and it slithers by, and it reminds her of the wise words spoken by professional cadaver Uncle Matty, Uh, just because a snake lost its skin and grew a new one, didn't mean that he would forget who he was. So wise words from uncle Maddie, um, and much like the family returning to the res, they all grew up, but they never forgot where they came from. Uh, and we're on the ricing canoe now. And uncle Nobby seems to want to know a little bit more about the general than John did. And John kind of explains that, well, he didn't really have any proof he did anything, uh, which basically negates the entire previous 90 minutes of the movie. Um, Not so much of anything is even going to happen to him. Uh, The only thing that's going to help John rest at night is knowing that uh, Uncle Norton's white friend, Sally, remember her? Uh, Apparently, she's a connected person. We don't really know what that means, Um, but he's confident that she's going to fix the general's visa and get him deported. Yep, you heard it. The general was Laotian the entire time. Fade to black. Cue credits.
2: So, did that general from Vietnam kill Uncle Norton? Well, there's no proof. So, nothing's going to happen to the guy? Oh, well...
0: Wouldn't say that. Norton's friend Sally, well, she knows people. I say he's going to have some pretty bad visa problems. Huh.
1: So that's it. There you have it. That is 2014's The Jingle Dress. I hope you all enjoyed that. Um, And I certainly don't want to give the impression that this isn't a good film. Uh, seriously, I enjoyed the, the heck out of this movie. I watched it like six times. Um, and it's one of the the story, you know, as fragmented as it is, it really is an entertaining movie. The themes of family, you know, home uh, and support uh, are certainly ones that everybody can relate to and appreciate. Uh, it may not be, you know, performed uh, or told the best way here. Um, But it's a super charming little movie, and you can pretty much safely view this movie with your family. There's no little to no cursing at all. There's no really super heavy themes, Uh, innuendo. There's no real violence in it. Uh, There's no, you know, uh, anything really super inappropriate or anything. Uh, But it's certainly a film that uh, may spark further discussion on values, family, culture, home uh and i do encourage everyone out there to give it a watch i mean it's only 9.99 and um it's a good value considering you know where where your money's going and you know it goes back to support native visions in film and art and i'm giving this film um because of that you know a solid 6 uh on the indian taco grading scale um it's it's got a good foundation of fluffy fry bread it's it's got a hearty scoop of chili meat uh it's got some beans it's got lettuce cheese and onions And it's definitely a comfort watch for sure. Like I said, um, the first time I I watched it, uh, I I wasn't too sure about it. But uh, the more I watched it, uh, the more I just I've really grown to love it. And I can't wait to share it with you guys. And like I said, I know this is like a three hour podcast, but um, definitely do yourself a huge favor and check it out. Um, I, I, I promise you, you will enjoy this film. There's no way you cannot enjoy this movie. But uh, as far as the cigar store groaners go, and I've actually had a couple of emails asking, you know, what, what does that mean exactly? Uh, well, the groaners, you know, are kind of like those emblematic, stereotypical, bigoted, you know, native tropes that you commonly see in movie and television programs that feature indigenous characters or themes or storylines. And I call them groaners, um, you know, because they're kind of like dad jokes. And every time you see one of these tropes played out, it'll literally cause you to groan out loud with frustration. You know, maybe you have your own, and I know I, that mine kind of change, you know, um, depending on what movie I'm watching. But this is, these are, you know, my top ten list of commonly seen groaners for um, uh, the uh, Jingle Dress. Uh, number one, uh, drunk Indian. Is, is there a drunk Indian in the movie? Yes. Uh, Rick appears to have a drinking problem, even though it's not really fleshed out in the script or the movie. Um, so I, I put yes for that. Number two, does the lead character have a white best friend or girlfriend? No. And I would safely say that the core cast and even crew is made up 100% uh, Native Americans, which is super refreshing and super amazing to see that on played out. Uh, Number three, is there a medicine man or shaman? And you get bonus points if one of the lead characters goes on some type of spiritual peyote journey or something like that. And the uh, answer to that that question is no. There's no medicine man or or shaman. Uh, The elders in the film um, are accurately portrayed, which, again, is is really nice to see that. Uh, Is the antagonist white or bonus points if he or she turns out to be the hero Uh, The answer to that question is yes. Uh, Art dealer Jaeger, who may or may not have been involved in Norton's death. We have no clue, um, but he was certainly putting the screws to him. And then the gray area here would also be Sally, um, Norton's side piece, uh, who subjectively, you know, gives the general his comeuppance by getting him deported. So uh, there's kind of two, two, that's two on on the scale. Uh, And then uh, number five, is there a native turncoat or a sellout? You know, what that means is, is there a character that's working for or with a white man? Uh, Maybe Rick, uh, maybe uh, giving his disdain for res people, uh, giving his disdain for Rick. um, It's kind of unclear. So I just put a half a point there. Is there a bar fight? No, but I sure thought it was going to come with Buff, with the introduction of Buff. I thought for sure bar fight was going to happen. Is there a mention of peyote or hallucinogenic drugs? No, there is not. Um, Number eight, did any characters use racial names or get called anything inappropriate? No, which, again, is another really amazing, refreshing, um, you know, takeaway from this movie. Uh, Does the character receive an Indian name? Yes, she does, Rose, but it really kind of fits into the main storyline, and it's not anything that's... uh kind of be used to uh parody or anything like that and then number 10 is there any mention of a scalping and the answer to that question is no there is no mention of scalping so adding it all up the jingle dress scores pretty low with a with three only three and a half groans um but i would say at least 10 good hearty belly laughs for sure so again it's it's a great movie guys i cannot brag on it enough check it out it's so it's really good movie it really is so that's it guys i hope you enjoyed this episode apologies again for getting it out so late uh with baby which you kind of heard in the background here and there and school it's just kind of hard to fit it all in in one day So many things, uh, you know, so many things to accomplish, so little time, right? And uh, join us next next month in October. I've got a whole slew of Native American-themed horror films that I can do, or, you know, I'm looking forward to that. Or if you have any questions or comments or suggestions, you know, always feel free to email me at scotincinema at gmail.com, or find us on the Facebooks and Instagram for updates and web-exclusive content. Make sure you tell all the warriors about us. Share, like, give us a heads up. Uh, send me a smoke signal. Mero to my wife, for putting up with all this crazy venture. Um, everyone telling me to speak up and stand closer to the mic. I appreciate you chiming in. Uh, Eduardo, thank you so much again for the kind words. The cast and crew of the Jingle Dress, the Whitefish Bass Singers, for providing the music. I had a blast doing this one with you. So I hope that it's, it's a three-hour marathon, but uh, hopefully it was worth the wait. Because I put a lot into this one, and um, I, I feel pretty confident that, that you'll enjoy it, uh, listening to it as much as I enjoy bringing it to you. So, oh, uh, have a great rest of your September, and I'll see you next month.